fuck that go in with the confidence of a mediocre white boy. Fucking go in with the confidence of Clive Barker on his first movie. First movie. to fucking crush it. Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified. The show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight we're opening our puzzle boxes and exploring the limits of pain and pleasure with Hellraiser. On our panel tonight, we have a collection of cinephiles and cenobites. We'll leave it up to you to determine which ones are which. First, my co-host and comic book writer, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you doing tonight? Uh, scared. This movie's scary as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next up, comic book artist, noted goth, and my frequent collaborator, Emily Martin. Emily, how are you tonight? I have such sights to show you. <laughs> See, that's why I'm fucking scared. <laughs> And finally, our special guest this evening, fresh through the portal from another dimension, it's podcaster and critic from Graphic Policy and Deep Space Dive, Alana Levin. Alana, how are you tonight? Great. I, I've been nagging you about how much I wanted to talk about Hellraiser for a long time, so I was excited to make it happen. Yes. I, I was so excited to watch this until, until now. I've never seen this movie, so this, this was a, an odd gap in my horror knowledge. Speaking of which, I'm your host, Jeremy Whitley, and I don't know what a Cinnabite is, but it sounds delicious. Uh, you guys ready to talk Hellraiser? <laughs> it definitely sounds like some sort of snack bite thing that Cinnabon would like sell. Oh, absolutely. Like, come and on down and get yourself a Cinnabite. That's I do a wonder if that's campaign. like, this movie is the only reason that that hasn't been a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody was like, we'll call it a Cinnabite. It's, there's just one guy on the board that was like, no! No, do not call it that. We know what the etymology of Cinnabite is. Uh, uh, it's, it's a religious thing, right? It's a yeah. It's, a, it's someone who is uh, or a member of a monastic community, so like a um, a priest or a nun. Uh, just a little bit of the basics uh, before we get started here. Uh, this movie is directed and written by Clive Barker, based on a novella by Clive Barker uh, called The Hellbound Heart. It's uh, his directorial debut. I mean, he's obviously written a lot of things before this, but this is his his first actual directed movie, which is really incredible uh, when you watch it to, to think that. Um, and it stars uh, Andrew Robinson, who uh, some of you... Anybody who's watched Deep Space Nine uh, will know as Garrick. I spent the entire film going, where the fuck have I seen this dad before? Immediately, Brett was like, he has eyes like Garrick. And then he just started doing the Googling. He's like, no, that's Garrick. And I'm like, really? That's Garrick? And less so now- and less scaly in this. <laughs> the smile. Once I knew, I was like, oh shit, yeah, it's that fucking smile. It's not the same. No, it's not the same. The performance is completely different. And that makes the deliberateness of Garrick's queerness in DS9 so much more deliberate that like his dad is such a fucking just generic dad. I think Sorry. the two performances of him in this movie, like by him in this movie, because there are two distinct performances by him yes. in this movie. Are, are pretty incredible. Yeah, the, the yeah, other two I mean, main he... stars in this are, are Claire Higgins and Ashley Lawrence. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about here, but before before we go through and spoil the whole thing, just the the really basics of what it's about is uh, Larry and Julia are a couple who are moving back to Larry's childhood home, sort of with Larry's daughter Kirsty, who is living somewhere else, but has apparently also just moved back to this area. 
Well, Larry's brother Frank has left some things behind at this house, and they're about to get pulled into a world of pain and pleasure. And real quick, uh, scare level guys: spooky, spooky, terrifying, or existentially scary. disconcerting. This, this is this movie is scary. This is this like scary, a terrifying, terrifying uh, yeah. movie. I feel like when people talk about horror movies, like as a general genre, it's like this is it. This is the the tone of the or horror this is scary yeah. yeah i mean there's there's a lot of horror movies out there with a lot of different um structures and plots and characters and all that kind of stuff and i mean this is a this is an incredibly iconic film but this is a horror movie that really makes the most of atmosphere when you have a very straightforward story not a lot of moving parts but just super invested in the atmosphere the imagery and the um that the the intense fear of the unknown that is the core of horror um not just shock and terror and jump scares and all that jazz but the just the the non-euclidean geometry of looking at something that is just terrifying visually and atmospherically i'd say Mm -hmm. it's very scary and also just like downright unnerving i I think it does you're into that existentially disconcerting quite a bit. Let's talk about our trigger warnings here. This, yeah, and this movie dives into the body horror like immediately, immediately. like within like a minute. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's body horror, blood, gore, more blood, bugs, maggots, torture. Uh, there is some really unnerving like assault and applied attempt and attempted incest, which is yes, yeah, that's that's there. That yeah. did not like that. But it was there. Yeah, I, right I honestly really preferred all the torture to the uh, attempted incest. Can I can I spoil something about that though that I think might be important for people about trigger warning? Sure, sure. It's to, yeah. to me as a viewer, it matters that Frank doesn't actually get to sexually assault or abuse Christy. Like, I it matters that like she doesn't actually get assaulted in those ways like for very long, and it matters yeah. that she gets out. You know. So I think that there's a lot of things in this that if they were handled by a contemporary horror person might have kind of veered into torture porn that aren't in this. Do you know what I mean? And so I'm definitely someone who there's like definitely big chunks of horror film that I don't do, but I can do this. This is is about as scary as I do, but I can do this. So, I mean, I think that like, if there being things that are threatened is a problem for you, that's definitely you know there but for me the fact that it doesn't actually <laughs> happen in those oh, ways yeah. is like okay here's the, yeah, it's an implied yeah. uh situation and the, you know there's a lot of yeah. the the um the sexual content there's a lot of explicit sexual content but most of the actual explicit sexual content like you know actual banging that we see on screen is is consensual yeah I do think it's really also very important to underscore the extremity of body horror in this movie. Like you, mm-hmm. you see something where somebody crab walks or like does a weird ceiling crawl and that's body horror. This is like, there there are a lot of latex skin being manipulated, you know, a lot of red stuff, incredible. A lot of chunks. Uh, chunky, juicy effects. Good, bright red, gooey, evil dead blood. And I yeah, some, it. Th- this movie would make a doctor like recoil. I think, as as far as I've heard. But yeah, um, apparently Claire Higgins, who is one of the stars of this movie, has never seen this movie. 
because she is so bothered by the amount of of blood and gore in this movie <laughs> he's only seen um, pieces of it there's uh, also some sad animal death or well it's, it's sad sad implied animal death it's it's very much practical effects but um you know if i know a lot of people who feel strongly about rats um so yeah, oh, the, yeah. there's not a lot of it but there's some very very pronounced and decided like racism in there <laughs> Oh yeah. yes, this racism and exoticism and yeah, not great. And, and some, of... some weird stuff regarding uh, people experiencing homelessness as well. He looks like he might offer somebody a snake at any moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> having, having just watched the craft, this may be a trap like snake salesman. So that's the end of our non-spoilery section. Yeah, if if you want to watch the movie before you uh, before we spoil everything for you, uh, this is this is your time to jump off. Otherwise, we're gonna jump into Spoiling everything. We're going to tell you everything that happens in this movie. This movie came out in 1987. Either Thank you've you. seen it or you haven't. You saw the title, then you watched it, or you're down for us to spoil the whole shit. Yeah, you've made a choice. <laughs> and you probably know who Pinhead is. And I'm not talking yeah. about Zippy the Pinhead, which is problematic, but the, the actual guy with the pins in his head. Well, that's a, that was um, an interesting thing to me. Going those are that This man is... This book does not know, or this uh, movie does not know who Pinhead is. He's yeah, lead he Cinepite. Is... Yes. Yeah. The um, fans named him, basically. Yeah. yeah. This was definitely a case of uh, a breakout character. Oh, yeah. yeah. From what I understand, Julia was really meant to be the main villain of the Yes, franchise. they were going to have Julia be the reoccurring villain and like stuff, which I just think is so amazing. I, yeah. So from what I understand, it was a combination of a pinhead got really popular and then the actress did not want to come back for the role probably yeah. because as you said like if she's no she's in heart. she's in the next movie but they well, shot it like two, right away well she was in two but she didn't want to come back after that right yeah yeah like they tried to get her back for like three onwards but like she was like wasn't into it was what well I, I mean good on her because hellraiser three hell on earth is what it is <laughs> it has two actors from deep space nine on it though i haven't <laughs> seen it but oh, I, I probably have to as part of my DS9 podcast, Deep Space Dive, which is just uh, launching right now. Awesome. Plug, I'm so plug, happy. Plug, plug. I didn't actually know that. Huh? I plug, said plug, yes. plug, 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 plug. Um, I'm so happy that Pretty you're doing Deep Space Nine podcast because of this Garrick situation. It's such a Garrick situation. <sighs> yeah, it's um I, I think the the thing that was interesting to me looking through like some of the, the trivia on this is that. Uh, I guess they hadn't intended for Pinhead to be the main speaking character in this uh, of the Cenobites here, and both the um, both the Chatterer, the guy with the teeth, and the uh, um, fat guy, who's uh, I don't remember what the character. He's called Butterball Cenobite, but Butterball. I don't yeah. really like that name. I don't yeah. like that either. Yeah, I think a... of him as the Slug guy anyway. I call yeah. him Shades. Yeah, shades. shades. I like it. That's the guy he's with actually the, like the, the guy most with the interactive one. guts. Um, yeah, apparently <laughs> the they were the supposed to have a lot of like lines that they couldn't speak because those costumes made it impossible. Um, so yeah, a lot of those lines, were, yeah, a lot of those lines were given to uh, character named in in this lead Cinnabite, who you know ends up being Pinhead. Um, I think partially because that makeup is so amazing and the performance in this is so good. Mm -hmm. 
It's um, the per- the performance is just absolutely killer. Yeah, and the the other you know the other real speaking part in this for the the monsters is female Cenobite, who apparently that makeup is impossible to move around in, incredibly uncomfortable. So she can speak, but uh, she you know is is not directly shot in a lot of this stuff. So that's a part also why. Uh, Pinhead is the most uh, iconic one, or the one used the most. He's the only one that can both move and speak. Yeah. <laughs> Despite that, he has yeah. a grid of pins in his head. So, good job, well, Bob know, the, Keen. Oh, great. The description of him from the book: the, the pins are jeweled on the ends, and I, I, I love that all the design work in the um, in the film. But I feel like that would have been a slightly different statement. Mm-hmm. The one you have when it, the pins are not necessarily clearly supposed to be like ornamental. In I that guess way. in the in the movie or in the book, he's called the priest as well. Um, yeah, I just think it would have been so great if like the lead torturer of the hell torture dimension shows up and his whole head is just fucking bedazzled. That <laughs> <Yes. laughs> is a different film, indeed. <laughs> Um, I will say, if you have not seen this movie anymore and you, you've listened to, you know, any sort of genre of goth industrial music, you will find the source of many of those samples. Yeah. <laughs> because, uh, this has defined a, uh, a, you know, not only the BDSM, um, not the BDSM, but like an, a, a, an aspect of BDSM uh, fashion, but, you know, goth fashion. Um is, I mean, this is this this movie. I can say the word iconic only so many times. I was but... going to say how this movie hasn't inspired actual BDSM. Are you oh, kidding? Well, I think there's outfits. <laughs> no, I mean, like literally, like it's like it's like an oberos of creativity in terms of like you have Clive Barker seeing people do suspensions at an SM club, and then you have him make Hellraiser, and then you have people watching Hellraiser do other suspensions in an SM club. So it is actually all directly connected to people doing- I was more thinking if anyone's into hook play. That's what I'm talking about. There's, I mean, if you look at like, there's the the stuff, um, and of course this is this is slightly different because of, you know with the Jim Rose Circus and they have uh, Mr. Lifto and stuff like that, but that's that is a an element of of actual like bo- body manipulation and stuff like that. That is, you know, it's it's all um, consensual uh, BDSM play, but it's you know the hook stuff, you know, maybe not as much with the stretching and the tearing, but, um, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there are levels and, you know, people are into some cool stuff, not gonna yuck anybody's yum. Sexuality um, is a beautiful rainbow of experiences. <laughs> so the I definitely feel us- like if you're, if you're gonna point to pop cultural products that have had a really outsized impact on like, people's sexuality like this movie is way up there like yeah this this one million dollar movie like that's that's the entire budget the movie was made for one million dollars how much was blood and donuts made for do we remember our dignity and souls (laughs) (laughs) but i mean like i can't imagine that they're they're much different in terms of budget but you know we everyone knows who pinhead is Everyone knows about Hellraiser more, you know, it either it's like a household name. Are you saying that Boya is not an international horror icon? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I am saying kid, that, Ben. 
as a kid, I was always, as a kid who did not watch horror as, as a kid, I was always confused by the fact that the names of the monsters weren't the same as the names of the movies. Cause in the case of like universal horror and stuff like that, you're like, you know, it's like Dracula is about Dracula. And so with all the eighties movies, I, I always have a hard time keeping track of is Michael Myers in Halloween or is I, is which one is, you know, you know I, I know now, but what I'm saying is as a kid, the fact that, Hellraiser is with Pinhead would have been it was one of the many things where I'm like, but wait, which monster is in which movie? How do you expect me to keep track of these things? I still can't keep track. The of answer was you growing up in the nineties. Yeah, was, I think the nineties in general was an especially bad time for the Halloween franchise, mostly because it's like, ooh, here's the big slasher, Michael Myers. It's like, no, that's Mike Myers is Austin Powers. I don't know who the fuck <laughs> yeah. this guy is. And he's also on the Yankees. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, it's like. Awesome. But also, I mean, there were a real garbage couple of Halloween movies in there, too. That, between, too. Yeah. In addition to Mike Myers sounding like a very forgettable Stan Lee character. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> Jason Voorhees is a much better name because it's like... Oh, Voorhees. It's memorable. Oh. And, uh, yeah. yeah. You know, you uh, it's it. funny because I think Laurie Strode has a better name than Michael Myers. So. Oh, Laurie Strode is oh, not his name. Sorry, yeah, like, I didn't mean to, sound, to sidetrack us with this, like, topic that is kind of ever... <laughs> when we have a lot of stuff what fucking sidetracks and tangents <laughs> why we never yeah so I to answer to answer ben's uh question the uh blood and donuts was made for an estimated three hundred and fifty thousand canadian dollars um which who knows what that was <laughs> who knows what who that, knows that, that is, is real money less money to be fair real money Yes, who knows oh. how much that money is in real money. Yeah. So Hellraiser did have more than triple their budget, to be fair. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, they must have with the with the uh the incredible special effects in this movie. All practical. All practical, gorgeous. And also again for folks, like this was Clive Barker's first movie that he ever yeah. directed. Again, no more going in with the confidence of a mediocre white man. Go in with the confidence of Clive Barker about to fucking crush his first film. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, sometimes leather play can give you some confidence. I mean, like arguably- he was, he was a very experienced artist in multiple mediums, you know? Yeah. So it isn't totally left field in a way. Arguably, he, still he peaks really early on the directing as well, so. Yeah. Well, yes. You know. But still, um, like, especially for a first movie, like the confidence and the skill and the craft that this movie is directed with is yeah. just something to behold. This movie is much like, I, you know, I compare this movie a lot to works of fine art, like, you know, the paintings of Francis Bacon or oh, yeah. the, the prints of Stanislaw uh, Beksinski, who is an incredible surrealist um, printmaker and, and um, draftsman from Poland. Um, you know, this sort of uh, German expressionist meets um, uh, symbolist work. You know, there's a lot of symbol symbolism in this movie um, and it is beautiful and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get into like super indie esoteric. I mean, it, it, it touches on that, but they still manage to keep track of the story and, you know, things still have that impact and a purpose Whereas, uh, you know, other more kind of uh, out there stuff kind of gets sidetracked with, uh, you know, let's 
um, watch this guy dance on a uh, in a Magritte painting for a while. You know, mm-hmm. it's <laughs> this is a um, this is fun with a purpose. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, on that note, let's jump into it. Let's start talking about the the actual plot here. Um, I do have to admit, not having seen this movie before, I was immediately a little turned off by the first uh, the first scene being just racism. Um, yeah. Because yeah. you know, it starts I, off in, with Frank in a uh, what seems to be an opium den um, of some sort. Well, this, it was definitely like a Moroccan. An opium den in a market, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah like a bizarre. Very Marrakesh very feeling. Yeah. And, you know, this, uh, this ethnic stereotype asks him what his pleasure is, and he says he wants the box. Um, and, you know, they say, oh, it's, it's yours. It was always yours. Uh, it was always and, yours. Yeah. And the next scene we get is uh, Frank playing with the puzzle box. We get to see the sort of manipulation and mechanics of the puzzle box in uh, in practice. And then uh, he we see He's all sitting these... in a square of candles. Yes. We don't get a great look at Frank in these early scenes, which will be important for later on. Mm-hmm. This is true. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but he's very like shirtless and sweaty, and like ready to have a shirtless, sweaty kind of experience when he's yeah. playing with his box. Yes, yeah, yeah and, and, and he important, does. he's definitely used the nail brush in between the time he picked up that box yes. and sat down with it. Yes, because that was fucking gross. But then he was cleaner. I was like, okay, he got himself ready. I mean, I think it was part of the whole ritual aspect. So already we have kind of a ritual aspect to this puzzle box. Um, you know, he's cleaned his fingernails out, which were, um, which have changed color, uh, between shots. Um, and he's in the middle of like, I don't know, a shack. Already, Frank then already better than Boya for cleaning his fingernails. Yeah. yeah. He, yeah. He actually like, you know, after he got his, uh, his magic item, he, you know, he went to town, got dolled up yeah. and very sweaty. <laughs> It's a very, it's a very sweaty, very dolled up date with the box, uh, and we we see <laughs> we don't see where a lot of it comes from, but we see a bunch of hooks come out and hook into his flesh and the screaming, and um, and we get the the next thing we really see is like this, this uh, you know, character of, of Pinhead, one of the Cenobites, uh, wandering through what used to be apparently the room Frank was in, which has a whole bunch of like uh bizarre torture devices and pieces of frank uh, attached to them all over the room and uh he is reassembling frank's face from uh from chunks which this, is, is, this is not how eyes work but it is a very scary jigsaw puzzle like mm-hmm. yeah it's a puzzle like yeah. honestly the putting the face together and like god just hooks and chains and dead things on chains and the hooks it's just scary yeah it's it's very gross like i mean you can you can look at weird red like gelatinous things on hooks and chains and be like haha that's campy and you can look at it and be like that's not correct this situation is not correct and this is like (laughs) they they managed to do that (laughs) it's very wrong yeah, make it incredibly unnerving. I don't know. The the general, the reassembling the face is a little weird going with the sort of general 
way they do a lot of the gore in this because you know you would think especially from a modern perspective you would have them like putting eyeballs back into sockets and things like this but it's just like a broken pieces of of face fully formed in this which is i feel like is equally parts like equal parts like that's not how that works but also unnerving and that like somehow that is how this works i don't know what the purpose was or if it was just pinhead wanted to do a little arts and crafts with like faces i felt like it was some sort of allusion to the the recreation of frank um because he had been scattered and then put back together um you know and this is also me speaking within like context of seeing a a bunch of these hellraiser movies and and kind of knowing more about the the cenobites and what they're about and um you know and how the torture world works (laughs) i guess um but uh um yeah, I, I, I feel like there's a lot in this movie, like in terms of transitionally, that, that is symbolic, but it is coherent rather than, you know, super mystifying. From a plot standpoint, I did think that that just, I did think like, oh, that must be why no matter how many people he kills, he can't like regenerate his skin. He needs to just straight up like steal someone else's skin because his skin is a fucking jigsaw puzzle you know i never thought of it that's that's a really good point because they still have his skin but anyway yeah Yeah, it's uh so from there we get a little bit of a jump forward to like you know the the cenobites disappear and reset the puzzle box or whatever and um then we get larry and julia moving into this house um they are very for some reason okay with this house being full of rats and maggots um which is weird um, throughout the duration they show up to this place and larry who is garrick just a humble tailor <laughs> what up larry um, robinson you're doing great and we all love you i don't know about that i mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean larry is just like a, a pretty mediocre guy he's kind of a um, doofus um, yeah I'm going to speak in defense of Larry in a minute here, but that's okay. okay. That's please do because, um, you know, I, I think I'm a little biased. Well, we uh, all love Andrew Robinson at least. Yes. I mean, yes. He very I, look, does not know he's in this movie. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't know that he's in this movie. This is his family house. So he's invested in like, rather than just being like, nope, screw this house. He's like, he's going to like hire some guys to clean shit up. You know what I mean? Larry like it's, thinks, well, they don't really clean anything up. Larry just, thinks well, it's clean. Like they no longer have the maggots in the kitchen. You know what That's I mean? true. Like, That's Larry true. Progress in a quirky <laughs> on the space over time. Where he's going to move to like his old, like his old family home in some England, either old or new, who it knows? It's unclear. <laughs> and england of some sort yes and like he's gonna like he's gonna and they're gonna fix up this old house and his daughter and his wife and they're gonna come together it's gonna be all quirky fun family time and it's like no larry that is not the movie you're in yeah larry does not know he's not in that movie the movie that larry wants to be in is like a perfectly fine movie you know what i mean like 
That's right, Larry. You should comedy. try to make peace between your your new wife and like continue to support your daughter and prioritize her needs and be a good dad. Like he's trying, you know. He is, and it does speak to his quality of character that he does like he kind of rolls with this house full of rats and maggots. You know, like it's not perfect, but it's it's family. I mean, there's a you know, I love yeah. the movie yeah. where Larry is the protagonist, and that movie is Straw Dogs. Like. <laughs> Oh my God. Like, because oh. that, that character has to get broken to survive this. Like, there's no, he's, you know, he's just kind of a friendly doofus. Uh, and, you know, if he, if he doesn't get killed when he does, you know, he, he, I, he seems to like, the really weird thing about this is his attitude toward Frank when they're talking about him early on, which like Frank is yeah. his brother. And he's just like, oh, you know, Frank. He's just into some funny stuff. He's a he's a strange guy, that brother of mine. And like, yeah, with his as the movie goes on, you're like, carving. Frank is not okay. How did anybody think Frank was okay? <laughs> you know, Larry definitely Julia goes. Julia thought like, Frank was okay. You no, know, Frank always up to his shenanigans. It's like <laughs> his shenanigans are like murder <laughs> and like sexual assault. Those yeah. are bad shenanigans. <laughs> Well, the shenanigans that we saw before, after, you know, like contemporary Frank, we saw flashback Frank, who is just like, he's kinky, he's into kinky shit. Sure, whatever, dude. Yeah. You know? Yeah, just into kinky yeah, was shit. Into he's it. into like well, yeah. showing up the day before his, his brother's wedding and and roughly fucking his wife immediately. Yes, within, within seconds. But again, I will say this, uh, fucking human Frank is goddamn is just sex on legs i yeah right the contrast like maybe there was an understanding frank and julia as the like sexual icons in this movie speaks so much to uh, clive barker's incredibly gay uh, sensibilities yes so can we just say like that that's something which i think is important and interesting like if this was a hollywood movie made by like a hollywood director they would have had some generic model looking girl and some like generic bland looking dude and like that's not that's not their that's not their sex icons in this he's like yeah. no they're both like a lot more real looking right yeah. and okay. like sean chapman bringing the stanley kowalski realness mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah this uh frank before the transformation um i don't know i mean he's freaky but he's like you know super freaky yow like he's not like a sociopath at least as far as we know he well, just okay. likes he does still blood. again have sex with his brother's yes. wife within seconds of meeting her <laughs> the day before the wedding yeah, yeah like, i'm pretty sure he was still a sociopath just not one that had to resort to not sure murder. yeah, yeah. And then tell me if I get this wrong, but it appears that he shows up the day before their wedding, fucks Julia, and then leaves before the wedding. Yeah, yes. that's how Frank rolls. That's maybe a that's Frank her rolls. like bachelorette party. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that like is, that is how Frank rolls. Yeah, maybe Larry's like, "Yo, um, can you just get this out of the way? Because I know that you're gonna try it. So maybe you should just do it now." And then, you know, we'll just pretend this never happened. Um, oh. And then you could go do your freaky shit. This is very, like, 
this is beyond a relevant headcanon, but I'm just saying, um, you know, this is this is a different level of amorality than like, you know, killing dudes and sucking out their life force and stuff. Right. You know. I'm honestly like, not sure which is worse. I like, do want to <laughs> There are very I mean, different types of amorality. I like, do want to give Julia a hard time for just again within seconds being yeah. like, well, fuck this marriage. But again, Frank is impossibly sexy. <laughs> yeah, and he's different. He's on a different level than um than Larry, you know? Except, oh yeah. Except he, the one thing about Frank. I have in is. my notes, flashback Frank is pure depressed demon nightmare boy. <laughs> oh yeah, no, he's the bad boy apex apex bad boy except for that his voice does not match his uh, mouth no uh, he is no he Man. is the, one of the main character he is the main character that is decidedly dubbed over throughout this because the the producers decided that american audiences would buy into it more if it took place in america <laughs> rather than england so they dubbed oh, over man. several english actors oh, my God. but That's- it doesn't make sense because his brother is Andy Robinson, who's an Amer- who's doing an American accent. Yeah. He's yeah. American. Oh, I'm Larry. I have, this house is full of rats. But, oh, you know. <laughs> fucking. And we know Frank is into kinky stuff because one of like his sex flashbacks is just him and someone else just wearing ninja masks. <laughs> yeah, he has all these photos. <laughs> Um, which you know, and, and until you see the uh, flashback with Julia just fantasizing about Frank, <laughs> also yeah. like. That's the thing about this movie is that there is a lot of this, like, we see Frank through Julia, too. Mm -hmm. Julia is definitely, like, not a fulfilled woman, um, you know, and, like, I'm not going to really cast aspersions. I know I've been pretty down on Larry, but um, I think it's important because Julia is, you know, she's just trying to find her yum. And you know that that gets out of hand certainly but we are so <laughs> understatement yeah i know but like julia, you know, julia does want her yum she no. really does want her yum and we get to see how much of that yum she really i mean we it's do see so like female gaze this is such a gooey movie yeah <laughs> so wet yeah there's a lot of a lot of wet and it's a it's a damp movie (laughs) yes no i i did want to say looking through trivia for this movie they were talking about the various names they went through uh and i thought this was relevant to this particular part so the film was originally supposed to be called the hellbound heart uh which is the same name as the novella uh the studio decided that sounded too much like a romance novel uh, and asked clay barker to change it uh barker's suggestion was sadomasochists from beyond the grave uh, Ama- amazing <laughs> amazing holy shit. thought that was too explicit uh so yeah, opened, like so apparently he opened the floor to the, the production team uh to suggest names now my favorite detail of this is that a 60 year old female crew member offered up the possible suggestion of what a woman will do for a good fuck <laughs> i mean that's julia's arc like, that is julia yeah 100 julia meme yeah. it's mimetic yeah, um fucking imagine what you do for a Klondike bar <laughs> yeah i mean and frank is definitely more juicy than a 
Um, <laughs> anyway, but uh, yeah, the the that arc for Julia and that being her like central motivation, I think you know is also a unique um, depiction of like her trying to uh, take hold of her sexuality um, because it's not necessarily like completely um it's not like really shown as degenerate like you could like through her her eyes you see her like you know how like speaking romance novel speaking about the hellbound heart um how fucking romance novel her flashback is with frank um and you know and they do a pretty good job of showing just like you know how hot that is (laughs) Although um, I do want to mention that there's the first section of this this uh, sex scene, man. Some of these movies in the '80s they make it pretty difficult to tell the difference between a rape scene and a sex scene because this starts off feeling really like on that borderline. He and also it goes on. It's like, oh no, she's into it. Okay, all right. Yeah. He also goes in for a kiss and definitely misses. And <laughs> oh yeah, with the chin, chin kiss. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely had the chin kiss in my notes there. Well, like the important, the important thing is like the initially they were supposed to be clearly having anal sex and the studio said, no. Ah, studio Uh. note was like, you're going to have to shoot that. So it doesn't look like they're having anal sex. And And I'm like, the specificity of the vision that the artist had that was like, <laughs> this is the fucking that they're doing is significant, right? Like, yes. Especially considering like, we talk about shitty sex scenes in this on, on the regular uh, and like unnecessary sex scenes. And the fact that so many sex scenes, even in horror movies are like roll around, thrust, thrust, uh, uh, fade, <laughs> like, it's like if, if you're gonna have sex in a movie, if you're gonna have a sex scene, then like it should be this specific, even if yes. not necessary. Oh, yeah. Like even if the storytelling it, isn't this aggressive. Game it out. How how does the way the characters fuck tell us about about them? them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. The roughness here, um, you know, Jeremy, you do bring up a a, a good point because. You know, there's a lot of sex scenes are not depicted as this rough, and then you know it does get a little. I mean, it could get into that um, that uncomfortable territory, certainly. But I don't know. Like, there's something about it. I've always read it as you know they're just playing rough. Yeah. Um, but that's a that is an important thing to um, discuss, especially when like trying to find that point between like normalizing. Uh, various forms of sexuality and you know also trying to not advocate um murder mur- well <laughs> um i'm talking about before he was a blood monster okay okay today like one if, if I were writing the scene, I would want Julia to do something like actively and obviously aggressive back at this point. Like there to be a good slap or a hit or something like that that's like obviously meant sexually. And she does bite him. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean that's yeah. that's 
part of it. Um, but yeah, you do want to, there's this level of like, you want to make it clear that there is consent there at some point. Um, yeah. <laughs> maybe a little quicker than this well, movie does. Sure. Yeah. There's absolutely. a scene later on in terms of like consent that I have like in my notes where it's like Larry, but Larry, buddy. <laughs> oh yeah oh, yes. i was a big larry fan until it took him a long time to realize that his wife See, was saying i know no. it's not actually being yeah. directed at you but you don't know that and she's yelling no a lot yeah. and then he's yeah. like he kind of pisses out of there and he's like <laughs> i don't know what you mean maybe yeah um, yeah it took him longer to realize that was going on than it should have yeah um Okay, so we've got there. We've, we've talked a lot about this this flashback scene, and yeah. it, there's a lot to unpack there. In the meantime, we um, get Kirsty so as well. It's that good um, fucking. Kirsty has decided that she is not moving in, which is a great plan because this yeah. this house sucks. It's full of rats fucking and mats, as we discussed. Kirsty um, already being a goddamn all star. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's like got. She's super canny. Like she's like she hasn't even been. She hasn't even seen the house. And and Larry's like, hey, yeah, come on, you can live with us. And she's like, uh, uh-uh, uh, no, I got a, I got a room. Dad, I got a room. Is is Julia the only character they let keep their British accent? I think so. Oh well, there's well, an actress who plays the guys. American. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes sense for Julia to be British in this yeah. movie. I mean, um, how else am I going to know that she's the bad guy? <laughs> and also, also she's frigid. coming back to Frank's like childhood house so she could be coming from anywhere um it makes it makes sense um again at least with after midnight i eventually realized it was florida (laughs) and then it was really florida this it's a port town yeah um i mean there everything is shot outside and this is clearly shot in england like it is so distinctly british all of the like bit parts, all the actors are so distinctly British, but they they just went out of their way to be like, no, America, it's it's fine, it's fine. Um, but yeah, well, um, so while Julie is having her fantasies about Frank, Larry uh, cuts his hand on the not pointy side of a nail, um, and just so just good really though the, the nailing. Everywhere. Like she is fantasizing about getting nails really hard while they're hoisting and literally humping the mattress up the stairs like struggling to achieve bringing the mattress to a place where it can be a part of sexual gratification and in the process of trying to do this and the workmen who are like really bad at the girls who give a fuck in the process of trying to do this this is when um larry's hand gets like pierced by the uh the nail and bloodied and it's like just a fucking amazing metaphor yeah, so good. Thank you. And there is so Thank much you. blood. It's again, it's that good ass evil dead gushy red blood. Yeah, this, this the, the wound he should get from this not sharp side of a nail and the amount of blood that comes out of his hand <laughs> do not seem to make sense together. But he should fine, bleed out in minutes based on how much that how much made. blood that was. Yeah. yeah. And, I, it, and you're also like you're also like no, I, I understand why you're queasy, Larry. That is a lot of blood. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No wonder you're queasy, Larry. You have lost a pint of blood. Yeah. Apparently, your jugular is in your hand. <laughs> And um, apparently your nail. flesh is made out of Play-Doh. I know it's like latex and stuff, but like, I get, and like the practical effects are great. Like that nail fucking goes 
into that hand and this movie while she's you. fantasizing about being nailed it's yeah. just so beautiful yeah I'm so proud of this movie. all sorts she's of penetration going nailed. on there yeah um, and christy uh, is a good also, capable daughter who takes him to the doctor to oh, get stitches one more question about julia and mostly when she's just unpacking stuff did she have a giant jar of weed that she was unpacking Oh, I don't know. Maybe. Probably. There's a giant jar full of some sort of green herb that she has. It might just be it's... tea. I mean, she is very British. She's yeah. so British. She's uh, like she's like a sexy Margaret Thatcher. Yes. There's really only one haircut. But yeah, I'm like, there's really only one joke you can make in this situation. And who wants to be the one to go, yeah, I'd fuck Margaret Thatcher. Uh, Nobody, um, that's who. Frank would. He's freaky yeah. like that. Frank would. Frank would. He's like war criminal. Let's go. Um yeah, is so there any prime minister? I guess no, I bet you he wouldn't bang Tony Blair. Oh, he totally would. He's totally bang Tony Blair, totally. I feel like he'd definitely bang Boris Johnson. He would dominate. He wouldn't let Boris look at him while he was doing it, though. Oh, yeah, no, no, thank no, you. No, 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 no. <laughs> it, would be, it would very much be like a humiliation thing as well. Yeah. Frank would... has some standards. Because <laughs> he's, I mean, he's so, Frank is so unfulfilled by banging weirdly. <laughs> Um, by, by walrus. That is true. That, like that. That is why he decides to risk his life. He decides yeah. to open up a puzzle box to a pain dimension, so a bunch of pain priests could pain him. It's Frank, is the, Frank is the Alexander Hamilton of fucking. Yeah. <laughs> all right, we're here all night, folks. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Larry goes up uh, to show Julia all of his blood. He's, he's like, here, get all my blood. <laughs> Uh, and Julia's Julia, like, oh, here, gross. Right hand. Um, he bleeds all over the floor. I for an uh, ambulance in medium England. <laughs> uh, so right. They, they, they rush him <laughs> off to go get stitches because, yeah, fucking obviously anybody, anything that's bleeding that much needs stitches. Um, and in the meantime, we get the most incredible special effects scene in that attic, which is uh, the, the blood seeping down through the floor into... What appears to be what's left of Frank's heart in the floorboards and him like reforming from the blood in what I can only assume is like some like clay special effects. There's just a lot of like. Uh, yeah, it's and it's in reverse. Yeah. Basically, yeah. they built the body and tore it down and then they reversed it to show it really? coming back together. This scene yeah. is probably the most memorable scene of the movie. Like it's so horrifying and disturbing like, see i was just staring at it going like wow that's so good like that spine and rib cage piece sticking into the brain piece and becoming you know one one whole body is like i was watching it and i was like man this is fucking incredible like, yeah it's so insectoid too spider-man 3 how come we didn't get to see the sand spine on cord <laughs> this is so like the scene there's so many deliberate decisions made about the horror the body horror of the the reforming of frank um into this like i guess a couple of hands and then a couple of hands with a spine and, and a heart and then a couple of hands with a spine and a heart and a brain like they did it was just weird like stages to this really gotta be the longest scene he was the slowly collecting all of the wizard of oz wishes yeah i, I yeah 
<laughs> um, and now the ambulance is coming for him. Um, fucking courage, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he's trying to get out of all of these guys. Yeah. So um, after they rebuild, I, I guess we, we cut to Larry and Julia's shitty dinner party where they're like yeah. huddled around love- one table in the undecorated like dining room of this shitty house. I, I live in New York. I can only do so much about the ambulance noises. <laughs> no, it's, I, I think it's a perfect background. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, and Julia is not party, enjoying this dinner party. Neither am I. This dinner party, which does not have a single Lisa Loeb number. Yeah. <laughs> fucking they, amateur hour. They name drop Joseph Mangala, though, which is like, just in case you forgot this movie was about torture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, he's um, talking about how he had a really bad time with the doctor. Mangala. Uh, uh, I thought it was weird how the one guy was trying to get Kirsty drunk and to, so he could sleep with her in front of her dad. Yeah, Steve. Okay, so this is where Steve is introduced. He oh, has he, um, he the silhouette of, of like young Tom Hanks with none of the charisma. <laughs> All of his style so like colin hanks you mean oh god oh <laughs> sorry that was unnecessarily mean yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a blow. come on colin, colin hanks is fine yeah he's fine and, and colin hanks probably would wear would spool top young tom hanks colin hanks any hanks would successfully chet dom- hanks listen colin hanks is better than chet hanks so he's got that going for him <laughs> Oh, I think I got them confused with each other. Oh, yeah. Colin is the one that's an actor. Chet is the one who's an asshole. Got it. I had I had totally forgotten about Chet Hanks. Um, probably <laughs> if for only the best. I could. Yeah, but I will say, I'm building up to one of the most incredible aspects of this character is that his shirts. His shirts are chef's kiss, especially that Pete Mondrian shirt that he wears later. Ugh. That is like where all like he he all of his stats are in you know top fashion. Yes. Um whereas Frank not is that kind of top, top, the other kind of top. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um yeah, and and uh they he's trying to get her drunk and she's like very much in charge of this situation. Like she's sort of like, okay, I'll bang you, but on my terms, you, we have very little chemistry, but you know what? I'm in this town full of maggots and cranes and my dad is fucking Margaret Thatcher. And I just need something right now for me. Um, So he, so she like, has a very unromantic scene with very little little chemistry. Um, her yeah, fashion game is a like thing, a place that is definitely not a subway, definitely not in London. Um, yeah, a subway. Definitely that not is, a tube station. Definitely yeah. not. <sighs> yes. <laughs> I was um, like this and, is clearly not a fucking New York subway. I don't know who you're fooling. Like, they have this very this this like exchange where they kiss. At least they're kissing on the mouth and not like eating sure. each other's chins. <laughs> i'll take it i mean yeah she but she also instigates it too which i think is you know like good on you go you go girl do do what you want um and one of the first like very non-romantic uh rom- like romance 
um, juxtapositions in this film where she is first notices the uh, the guy with the visor um, and the, you know, the, the, the beard and everything kind of staring at her. And she's like, well, that's weird. I'm going to go make out with this dude. Yeah. And... I, so I, I would say I had this interesting thought that I think Steve is the exact uh, like zero on the chip scale, right? Like he's right on the center. He's, he sure yeah. is there. <laughs> like, he's there. He's, he, he might contribute maybe something, but all of his, uh, his flaws detract. Yeah, he does not know what's going on, but he is game to help out if he can figure out how to. So, yeah. And then, um, and then Christy, I guess I thought they were in the same bed, but apparently they're not. No. Okay. They're not. I noted it. That's the kind of thing I pay yeah. close attention to. Yeah. So but she has a bad dream. <laughs> well, her, yeah. meanwhile, at this point, we do actually have uh, our uh, first first meeting between Julia and the gooey mummy version of Frank. Um, up <laughs> the up inside the the bloodless but gooey and unable to stand it would seem version of Frank. Um, who really wants, like, he's like, yeah, blood brought me back. Why don't we try killing some more people and see if that helps me get better? Um, <laughs> and Julia is like, yeah, I guess. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I love that he, he holds her accountable to something that she said, like, mid-coitus. <laughs> and I'm like, Frank, you of all people should know about what you say mid-coitus yeah. <laughs> should be held but you know frank isn't very good especially after he's um i mean now now he's a flesh monster and so therefore i am anti-frank at this point yeah um yeah and this is when uh, yeah kirsty has the dream about bad things happening to her dad and decides to call uh, in the middle of the night. The one time that somebody picks up a phone when they should pick up a phone in this movie is when uh, Kirstie's like, you know, I just had a bad dream. Something happened to my dad. So I'm going to call him at three in the morning. I want to talk about the dream real quick. Do it. Because the, I mean, you have this sort of like funeral imagery and there's some other kind of uh, very like symbol symbolist st- symbolism going on. Um, and, uh, color is a big thing in this movie. They, they, you know, the color red for some reason is, is very prominent, bright ass red. Um, but there is this, uh, this, uh, like funeral shroud on a table and it like starts get seeping blood and stuff like that. And it's, it's masterful imagery. And then over that is a baby crying. And this is the point what I want to point out that the the industrial axe coil originally did a soundtrack for this movie but it was too weird so let's just think about that for just a second I think okay. part of it actually is as well is that the uh, studio wanted to hire like an in-house band so that they didn't have to pay any sort of copyright on anything um, yeah so- I also heard the studio said that the coil soundtrack was too gay I'm like not even joking. Why? Why? Well, I mean, if they looked, if they look into anything, coil, 
I mean, they do have a song called, or they, well, they have the song called The Anal Staircase, so. Yes. That can be applicable towards all sexualities. Yeah, but Coil is queer, so it's like, the studio was like, this is too queer now. Despite the fact that they also literally made Hellraiser, which is... It does make you wonder what movie the studio thought they were making. Right? (laughs) Studios often don't know what movie they're making, and, and God bless it, right? Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot. Of, there was a lot of winking going on. There's there. some painfully straight producer making this movie. That's like, oh yeah, there's uh, torture demons. It's it's gonna be fun. That's very sexy, straight. right? Hmm. Yeah, well, very straight. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah. That that scene is is really interesting. The dream. There's lots of it. It feels like feathers falling. It feels very surreal. Um, and weirdly magical in a way that none of the rest of this movie does. Um, yeah, we don't know how she gets this dream, other than I guess she's she's been she's been around that weird ass house for a while. I think um, you just. I mean, I had a weird ass dream last night, and you know, I just watched the movie. Honestly, I, I, but I, one thing I appreciate about Larry is that Larry is like, oh, my daughter called me because she was worried. I will answer the phone and be loving and patient. Like he's a good dad. Okay. It does seem like they have a really good relationship. Exactly. And and I think one of the reasons why she immediately figures out when someone is in person, when evil Frank is like literally wearing her father's skin is because he starts acting like a creep. And she's like, my dad's not a creep. Ergo. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But I know someone who is a creep. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And she's also like, I am not actually turned on by this man saying, come to daddy, because yeah. I don't have dad issues. So I'm pretty sure that this is a bad idea. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was like. He also doesn't have any skin. Yeah. Which is. <laughs> I assume she has psychic powers the same reason fucking any of these horror movie protagonists just have mysterious, unexplained psychic powers, which crops up surprisingly often. Yeah. Yeah. And from here, like we we go back to Julia uh, on the prowl. Um, she picks up a guy at a bar that is definitely not in London. This bar is definitely not in London. It feels what? like it's in London. Um, but yeah, she. This isn't Heathrow at all. That's ridiculous. <laughs> every bartender or every every uh, patron of the bar looks like some sort of cheap Rowan Atkinson. <laughs> and I, I love what it. I, what I appreciate about Julia's victims in this movie uh, is that they do a, a gradual slide on this where like this first guy is is an overly aggressive shitbag and is like not a good dude, especially like they, you know, they get back to the house and he's like, are you just fucking around with me? Like, you're not actually going to give it up. They Don't definitely change your mind. They like, definitely All right, this guy can die. That's fine. Yeah, they definitely know to start us out with like, Okay, let's make sure that audiences are on board with this character getting sacrificed and murdered. Yeah. Well, like, here, here's what's so great about Julia and this movie, because Julia is a product of this movie and not a self-generating character. Um, Julia's outfit that she puts on to go seduce businessmen is like this fabulous, like this is what you would wear to go present to the board and for your New York Times profile about how you're like the new you know, the, the coolest new CEO in like edutech or whatever. And yeah. 
she's like delivering full on business. I'm that bitch glamour. She is not like I am a sex trap. She's this, the, the outfit she's wearing is not what most movies would have their female temptress wear to lure men in for the slaughter. But yeah. the men, this whole thing is like not about being basic, right? So they're like, yeah, yeah she's not like just going to be there like in a low cut dress and like, oh, oh, no. She's like a hard ass businesswoman with like her sexy business suit. That's completely work appropriate, right? Like yeah, that's I mean, what she, she's wearing to seduce businessmen. She's she's wearing total power suit. Mm-hmm. She's got like the green eyeshadow. Her hair is at max power you know like her power levels on her hair are like at maximum and you know i did i did uh compare her to margaret thatcher and you know what i'm gonna go ahead and say i was unfair because you know initially she's sort of shown as frigid but when she starts like getting her groove on and like going out and finding all these dudes she is like incredibly like powerful um aggressive uh, or not just not aggressive assertive like she she goes out there and she's like yes i'm a powerful woman and you want this and these guys are like yes i do i do want this <laughs> you know she's not like dropping the handkerchief by any means um yeah there there is some of me that wonders how that. much of this is like intentional and how much of this is is queer ass clive barker like going like yes this is my ideal like sexy temptress this is what a femme fatale looks like yeah um you know that's 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 an interesting sort of duality to me i think to some extent it's it's kind of both um yeah so she she takes him back to the house and lures him up to the attic uh and then beats his ass with a hammer (laughs) um and then frank consumes him it's all it's a little vague especially here what frank does to him um but he sticks his fingers in his face and yeah Yeah, he's like sodomizing their life force out of them and back into his but they're into his body yeah he's (laughs) yeah it's gross (laughs) and and like the hammer death it's not like you know in a lot of films even you have somebody would get hit by the hammer it's like you know that the donk in the back of the head and then they fall over you know, like they do the the almost like the the Vulcan nerve pinch or whatever. Like you know, you see these movies where people get knocked out, and it's usually like, um, you know. But this is like horrific, where the dude's yeah. teeth get knocked out, and they they have all these extra um, special effects to show like his just mangled face. And um, Julia is horrified by this, even though she's. I mean, like Frank has like supernatural powers to suck the life force out of people, where he could like literally like stick his fingers into somebody's face and like, you know, flesh meld with them. But Julie is the one who's uh, like delivering the killing blow. Um, and she has like serious reservations about this, at least initially. Um, and uh, it's, it's a really intriguing dynamic because she's, she is in power here. Like she is, she is in control um, and she's sort of, saving uh frank from you know she's basically feeding frank like he's a like he's a babadook <laughs> but uh um, i found it interesting i thought this would be the kind of thing where she would lure them to or she would lure these men to frank and then frank would like kill and consume but now she was she was swinging that hammer yeah she she did the dirty work as well as i mean she did all the she 
I mean, it's dirty, but um, (laughs) such a a mess. And I didn't see any Lysol anywhere. I don't think Lysol exists in this house. I think they just scrubbed everything really hard with a rag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, this what, is the one rag out of the like yeah. climax of Friday the Thirteenth too, and the you know the original Friday the Thirteenth where the mom is the villain. Sorry, mm-hmm. spoilers for the original Friday the Thirteenth, but like you know it's got that very like she's just frantically hitting this dude um, until he stops moving. Yeah. Um. So yeah, and we have the first the first kill for julia um and frank says something about or he's 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 sort of promising more to her um and he says something about it you know we'll we'll be together again it'll be like love only real um and uh you know there's there's some things to unpack there um yes he's been through the the torture dimension um but uh, you know, he's also grooming her real bad. Elsa says, "Like oh, it's gonna, this is gonna take another two or three more murders for me to really be at full strength, so we can get out of here and escape the escape the Cenobites, which he does not explain to her what they are, um, which seems it seems it's, it sounds bad enough on the surface. I mean, yeah. he is a flesh monster, and you know, initially, like they when they have him a lot more emaciated before he's like, you know." Um, skinless anatomy man you know his his he has this really kind of gross floppy muscle face that's barely there um and they have i think there's there's a little bit of puppetry going on with his lips where he has like a couple of flesh lumps around his teeth and it's incredibly done in terms of the the uh uh the special effects i mean again masterful yeah this is the point at this point is where he starts to turn into a a gooey blood muscle monster and he puts on a blazer. Yes. It's very well, strange. Hey, just because you're gooey doesn't mean you can't be looking sharp. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. Although it, Frank wears more clothes without skin. They have at this point where he's gooey flesh monster. I'm just like, God, just, why? How can you? This, this isn't sexy. This guy is very, very wet. Oh, I know. It's gross. Yeah, I mean, I feel like when when you well actually i'm not going to go into that the feeling of wounds on on fabric but um yeah yeah, it doesn't look very comfortable and Um, this is this is where we get to see julia's or not julia's but uh uh kirsten's job now right yeah turn to visor guy Um, this this pet shop is so not above board Yeah, the manager has left her to deal with several several uh, people, including that seems to be a woman who is attempting to perform the parrot sketch with her, and she doesn't know she's part of it. <laughs> um, Thank you. Uh, no, there and there's there there's there's monkeys in cages, like some sort of illegal pet abuse. It's the eighties, man. It is. Com- um, yeah. Yeah, and the the guy with the visor shows back up um, to dip his hand into crickets and eat them oh i did not like that scene (laughs) did not like at least it wasn't the mice that's all i'm saying the weirdest thing about crickets are a healthy source of protein and good for the environment 
Look, this guy's all ready for tr- Snowpiercer. I guess when exactly. they need a homeless skeleton dragon. <laughs> Crickets are basically the shrimp of the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the weird, the, the weirdest thing about this, uh, this, this guy with the visor is that, like, he, um, he doesn't ever interact with her. He just sort of stands at a distance and doesn't talk and eats crickets and just hangs around i guess waiting for the point in the future where she will sometime have the puzzle box that she doesn't even know exists at this point so like you know, i don't think he's i think he's symbolic i think he's like a, in i don't think he should be regarded as like a person in the context of the story which i don't think undermines people's critique that this is like a problematic portrayal of a homeless of like a person who's homeless yeah but i don't think he's supposed to be taken literally I mean, including like the last scene. Yeah, I feel like that's pretty literal when he's literally. Nobody else sees him. Dragon. I mean, and there's... he only, what's her name? His boyfriend only sees him after he's been through the same trauma she's been through. That's a good point. And there's actually a bit in my, in my notes that uh, I've, I found here that's postulating that Frank, is Frank real? Or is Frank a, a manifestation of, um, Julia's Julia? issues yeah mm-hmm. you know um I mean this it gets pretty real later I mean the 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 Cenobites being what they are there's a lot to look to look into there but um because I think that he, he sees Frank sees the Cenobites Christy sees Frank um but you know and then the uh the the guy the um the bearded visor guy is you know, he's just kind of there, but he's sort of, he's more of a ghost than anything, I think. You know, he's he's just there to look at, at uh, Christy and do do a weird thing. Um, he's here to eat crickets and stare creepily, and he's all out of crickets. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. That's why he's here, to get some more. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this, this leads to, uh, you know, we get another scene of Julia... Uh, bringing a guy back to the house. This guy is nothing really to speak of. There's not much to him. Uh, you know, she he's he's notably not as bad as the first guy and not as pitiful as the third guy. Um, yeah, but sort of a in between. We're okay with her killing this guy, I guess, because eh, we don't know who he is. Um, <laughs> yeah, she, you know, she beats this man with a hammer again. And, uh, Frank consumes him and gets uh, a little more, a little more muscle over bone now. Um, they st- still needs to kill more people, though it seems. Um, more, more murder. Yeah, and this this eventually leads to uh, a scene of uh, Larry and Julia interacting. Um, <laughs> they're watching TV on the couch as there's a thunderstorm and there's. Uh, I love it though. He's, they're watching boxing together. And he's saying to her that she usually isn't able to stomach watching boxing, but she's suddenly sort of getting off on the violence and getting into it. And this is also the most animated that we've seen Larry when it comes to like this kind of stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. And and Frank is upstairs pacing like an animal in the, Mm -hmm. in his little attic room, like pacing back and forth and just kind of getting riled up. Yeah, and Larry, high on his uh, boxing, watching adrenaline, decides he's going to go investigate those noises upstairs, figure out what's <laughs> going on. Um, 
and Julia keeps trying to stop him and it's it's not doing so terribly effectively and tries to make out with him to get him to stop and that only sort of works as he continues to pull her upstairs um, at which point uh, he, he peeks into the room and Frank hides somewhere in the I don't know strange layout of this room that I feel like changes throughout the movie it's <laughs> never quite certain where everything is which I'm fine with for the record yeah, yeah. same yeah, this particular room, that's fine. Because um, the room is already breaking all kinds of laws of physics, right? It's like yeah, where yeah. the dead come back to life. Somehow all the Cenobites can come in through the walls, through the boards, even like it just, it's, this room isn't a literal, it's not literal, you know? Yeah. That would be missing the, the point. Room. Also, it's, it's very clear that this room is the one place in this house that is on a sound stage. Because like the rest of the house is clearly a house because like some yeah. of the shots are so tight and they're, you know, clearly just like working with the space that they have. So there's, you know, like weird vertical pans and stuff because there's nowhere else for them to move. Um, which is, is interesting. It adds, I think, to the, the atmosphere and the creepiness of it, but it, it definitely seems to make it harder to shoot outside of that one room in the attic. Yeah. Well, and the house seems the 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 upstairs, the top upstairs, because I think there's multiple. There's more than two stories, but there's only three rooms up there. I think it's the uh, the blood room, the corpse room, and the bathroom. <laughs> yes, um, the third room. <laughs> yeah, and there's a closet with Jesus in it. But um, oh, the Jesus closet is so good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's he's... Jesus paintings and whatnot, like everywhere in this house. So much Jesus. Yeah. Well, mm. he's there a lot, and that's why he's sad. But um, well, he's also right. kind of bloody and kinky, right? Like... Oh yeah. Well, he's got that crown of thorns thing, and this is also where the um uh larry's like oh it's just a rat and then it's just a rat nailed to the wall yeah let's oh, bang now. that was that was a scene and oh yeah oh, so out. rat lovers like, i'm so sorry nailed to the walls yeah they're rats nailed to the walls and then larry and um how long do you think like you think frank like grabbed them right away and just nailed them or is it almost like a comically long Benny Hill, like the rats just running around the room and Frank's chasing after him. Like, nah, 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 <laughs> I mean, since they're in London, um, or not in not London, it's just they're the in Benny Middle Hill. England. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the Benny Hill music backwards. Well, that summons, <laughs> I guess that summons evil Mr. Bean. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's kind of evil. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this is. This is also the scene that uh, most closely came, almost addressed the question I'd had throughout, which was having seen enough um, vampire movies about vampires trying to be good, has Freak tried just like feasting on some rats and seeing if that helps out with this? Or does he, did he just jump straight to the human murder? Like, I think there's more to it because he's like, when he, when he drains people, he just kind of, makes them age which makes there's there's a lot going on there like it's not just blood it, there's like some sort of essence that he's taken out and maybe he did try with the rats but he's also um, got the jojo vampire thing going on where he doesn't bite people he just like sticks his fingers in them and like 
absorbs their life force. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say he's got an Imhotep thing going on. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you have to think about this also. This is in the context of 1987, right? Like you have a movie that's being made at the height of the AIDS crisis. And the, the, you know, just like having this bodily transference of power and life force, it's like, it's very, very, very visceral in how it's shown in this movie. Mm -hmm. And like, there's just a lot of what's we're looking for i think like this was a moment in the story where you they 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 needed to invent a different kind of a vampire Mm -hmm. and i think pinhead and the cenobite sort of serve as a 19 late 80s like vampire aesthetic that is sort of has a different relationship to blood than the dracula one so I feel yeah. it feels kind of time specific to me in those ways. Actually, did we talk about the character designs during this or was that before the show actually went live? That was, that was before the show. Cause I would, I mean, we talked a little bit about how they're good, but the, the character designs of the Cenobites, there's a lot going on there. And, and there is something to be said about a movie where you have this paradoxical pain and pleasure uh, situation in the midst of the AIDS crisis people looking for satisfaction but that satisfaction being demonized people looking for you know looking to push their limit and then ultimately getting um, you know going too far or something like that and it, there's again there's a lot to that is being said there but I think it's really interesting to see not I, I feel like the the Cenobites their blood is just sensation and therefore they're more literally about sex than a vampire is and there's there's a lot to talk about there too because um being being in the midst of a um the pan the aids pandemic and being a person who is trying to find validation and um you know joy in their sexuality facing this this fear of death um in something that is otherwise you know associated with love you know or at least traditionally um or at least associated with fun something that is you know like the 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 cinnabites are kind of like this cartoon version of how regular i don't know regular vanilla i don't know um i don't want to cast dispersions but you know it is sort of the the ultimate demonization of like the bdsm identity which yeah, i mean there's sort of a chick track brought to life right like, yeah yeah but it's also and, supposed to be like scary but compelling which is what people want in the first place yeah, yeah. like like it's not it, it you're supposed to be scared and attracted to it and like it's doing that for the viewers in general yeah i mean and, and clive barker like specifically talks about how he, he was inspired by stuff you saw in SM clubs. Like he talks about that for this movie and these designs. And I, it's like, I was, I was sitting with folks before here, like, I think there's sort of like an Oberos of like Clive Barker goes to an SM club in New York and see some people doing some suspensions with hooks and is like, I'm using this in my horror movie. Then he makes Hellraiser. 
And then kinky people are people who perhaps weren't kinky, but then realize that upon seeing this movie, see this movie and <laughs> are get inspired by it and then do their own sort of real life versions of some of these suspensions at the horror clubs and this, at the, sorry, at horror clubs, at the SM clubs. And the cycle sort of continues. Um, and so I, th I think it's such like a huge cultural influence in people's sexuality in that way. But he also was like, literally referencing stuff in a movie that was done for mass distribution mm -hmm. that I just, it's really impressive that he was able to get as much through as he was able to. I, I think and I love, I forgot the name her. of the costume designer, but he specifically was coaching with her to like, he like, he's like, here's some SM magazines. <laughs> think about them, think about butchers. I think you have the like butcher apron styles. And in the books, apparently, cause I, ha I have not read the book, but like in the book, they have exposed bone, the Cenobites have exposed bone that's been ingrained and inlaid with like jewels and etchings and stuff. And that's just like the most extreme level of body modification that one could possibly have, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. And it, you know, they're connecting it to the whole like, uh, I really fucking, there has to be a less racist term than modern primitive um, and I should have looked it up what it was, but back in the 90s, people talked about it as being the modern primitive movement of like, you know, going and having um, these ecstatic pain experiences to trigger endorphin release, like doing chain suspensions through your chest from the ceiling and stuff like that. Um, and so like, that's literally what the Cenobites are, that, that's, what, that's what Frank was going for. Like that was the experience that Frank was seeking out. You know, it's, it's interesting to think, uh, you know, as far as the Ouroboros of this goes, like for how many people was watching Hellraiser there, you know, Frank, like was, was that their experience of, or, you know, the, the equivalent of Julia, you know, having rough anal sex with Frank that they're like, yeah, I'm into this. This is, this is the thing I've been looking for. <laughs> I definitely, I mean, this is certainly an incredible example of, um, or I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, an ultimate example of self-informing subculture you know the the uh like a lot of the other um subculture stuff that i had mentioned earlier like the industrial music scene and and like goth scene and stuff like that and how you know something bubbles up into um the mainstream and then informs the culture again because you have a new generation of people that are that are now just seeing something that is otherwise hidden and, you know, in terms of the themes of the movie with a puzzle box, this eldritch terror, things like that, you know, there are, there are explorations here that are profound that, you know, you come out, you come out of this movie and it's spooky and it's terrifying and there's terrifying imagery and, and unsettling imagery. But there is this movie, unlike many other horror movies, is really like looking into some non-Euclidean geometry of, hmm. you know, this this kind of the base instinct of, of pain and pleasure and sensation. And also, you know, that part of the sort of the bestial part of oneself that they don't really understand, but, you know, is always with you. And it's, you know, with, especially with Julia and her, her escalation and Frank and everything, there's a lot of the becoming the monster. And, and interestingly, the, the ultimate monster comes for you. You know, like Frank and Julia become a monster, but they just become fodder for the the unknown, uh, which are the Cenobites that are just beyond 
anything that is i mean it's definitely visually beyond anything that has recently been shown in in movies but uh there the 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 cenobites design getting back to that like the the this sort of german like industrial with the goggles anything and everything and the and the leather and also the um the this like the the gloves and everything i think like a bunch of um industrial acts have been very established at this point you know we got skinny puppy we got front 242 we've got um uh, jim throwwell who's also member of coil for a while who did the that soundtrack you know and they'd they'd been doing this like leather goggles piercings thing for a while and now but you know they're still um very very underground yeah um anyway but the 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 cinnabites designs i think are worth especially if you're if you, any of you out there are um artists and character designers interested in horror um there is a lot uh going on with these designs that um are really worth some study in terms of just like the the decisions made the the silhouettes um you know there's definitely gross aspects to them like the the teeth chattering guy and the the female cenobite has some sort of tracheotomy thing going on that makes her neck look like a vagina (laughs) it's amazing yeah um and they still like it does not look campy you know and the and the deep voice that pinhead has that is like just shy of real you know it could it has a little bit of a special effect on it but you know it's just like a it, it's a pretty believable voice um i can't remember who the actor is that that Doug does bradley yes thank you um man, it is unnerving um so yeah anyway and she yeah, has a wonderful was... deep and androgynous quality to her voice as well. Like, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry they didn't have the same actress back in the future ones, but I loved yeah. her voice too. Apparently they tried to get her back. She did not she want just to do was it. like, I can't deal. I, I, yeah. I sympathize. It looks very Apparently that's incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. her, her whole makeup array. Yeah, that's uh whew. Can only she imagine has a whole how many body hours. piercing and yeah. How many hours do you think it took to like get all that together? Like how many hours in the chair each day? I don't know. Apparently it was like to the point that it was not comfortable to sit in. So, you know, she had to basically stand the whole time she was on set. So, yeah, that's why she she does not come back for future ones. And then part of why Pinhead becomes the sort of iconic main, you know, antagonist of, of the series is because, uh, you know, the, the one other character who is capable of speaking in this thing, uh, you know, the actress does not want to come back because it's uh, no fun. <laughs> I mean, picking up where we were on the, uh, the outline here, um, you know, they, they try to investigate the attic. They just find rats with uh, nails in them, which Larry, I guess, thinks is fine. Um, <laughs> no questions about how that happened or why. Um, this, well, no, no, no. He, this, he knows that Frank used to live here. So he just puts this under the category of that's some Frank bullshit. We're not going to look too deeply into it. He just, very fresh he just looked at that, crossed his arms, side, rolled his eyes, and went, oh, Frank. No, 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 no. Rats! <laughs> now let's bang. Like, yeah, uh, so he, 
he is finally he's like all right i investigated this thing i protected my woman so let's go ahead and let's go ahead and get to this banging that you wanted to do and um they go down to the bedroom and have a very uncomfortable scene where uh he is clearly trying to get into it and she is clearly not into it and uh frank creeps bloodily out of a closet and uh uses his we haven't talked about frank's signature switchblade here uh, mm. he really oh, yes. loves this switchblade he's a very do like we, do we see him really use it yes only to slice the rat in half at this no, point he, it's how he kills julia later Oh, that's well, I'm right. saying, that's like, up to now, I think he's only. And he uses it like... in sex with Julia earlier, too. That's well, yeah. that's true. But let's be honest, of course, Frank's into knife play, like light he's knife not, play. He doesn't he's into light knife play. He wasn't ready for the heavy knife play. Yeah. <laughs> he he doesn't actually. Tough. He's, you know, he's really into rough sex and West Side Story. Like, <laughs> the no, 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 no. Aesthetic. Um, you guys are both doing dances. Us snapping in unison is going to go great on an audio based only podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I we'll tried know to do that it up we here. Na- we'll know that we were nailing it in perfect. Yeah, we'll, we'll remember. Um, Cinnabites. Cinnabites. <laughs> it's a munch squad. Um, oh, no. This different cop- podcast. Sorry. Um, the. Uh, <laughs> The, the knife situation, though, I think is worth mentioning because that does kind of contribute to the, the, the uncomfortable quality of, the, of her initial flashback. Because, yeah. you know, he's got a knife and he's sort of like, ooh, knife, ooh. And, but he's just, he doesn't cut her. Um, During the scene, he threatens to stab Larry from behind and instead just, just carves up a rat. Um, I guess it's meant to be a warning to her. It looks more like he's getting ready to have a, a nice uh, snack. He's working on a, a meat tray. Um, yeah, that was. I didn't know how to handle that. And I know he mentioned earlier the big problem with that scene is that while Julia is pleading for Larry's life, uh, the form that's taking is her yelling at Frank, like, no, over and over again. Yeah. Larry doesn't know Frank is behind him. All he hears is his wife yelling no and it takes it like mm, the a for nine for no before he stops actively having sex yeah. yeah and then his dismount he's like i just don't understand you and then kind of cries and um kind of runs away um in in a not very um sympathetic fashion he's like what you know it's the I mean- class- in all fairness, he is attempting to ask her what's going on, and she is not answering any okay, of his yeah. questions. Like, yeah, he's the the rapiness of the thing is a problem. Yes, uh, she is. Uh, she is not communicating at all with him, though, which is partially because she is uh, a murderer who is helping his uh, muscle ghost brother um, reform himself. Um, but I mean, in the like, ultimately, in a, in that kind of situation, first he he doesn't respond to the no very quickly, um, yeah. and I know it's 1987, but um, the fact that he does respond to the no is is you know a a step in the right direction in terms of you know where where we are in film at this point. Um, but you know the the fact that he's like he's complaining about how 
he sounds more that he's complaining that he's not getting any, getting any, mm-hmm. um, even though, you know, it is, it can be argued that he's just like, what is going on though? Like what is, but a situation like that, if, if somebody's upset, sometimes they just don't have the words to describe why they're, you know, they're, they're going, they're on one minute and off the other, you know, like that's, that's why sex is complicated. And to Larry's credit, the next thing we see him do is go have lunch with Kirsty and say, hey, I think Julia's really freaked out about something. She seems to be having a hard time adjusting and she doesn't want to talk to me. Do you think like you could go by and talk to her sometime and just like try and help out? Like, I don't know what's going on. If you could give us a hand, you know, yeah, that would be great. And like, he's, he's very understanding in that respect. Um, even if he doesn't know what it is he's attempting to understand. Um, and of course that goes great because uh, Kirstie comes back to the house and uh, sees uh, Julia pulling her, her third murder victim into the house and I guess Busted. assumes that assumes that uh, they are doing what she is telling this guy they're going to do but then just follows just follows them into the house and I really feel like I feel like I was in Kirstie's shoes, I'd be like, well, shit. Um, I'm not getting myself <laughs> any further into this situation than I have to. Um, she's probably doing it on the behalf of her dad, where she's like, well, dad told me to figure out what's going on with Julia, and, you know, maybe I, I just need to figure out what's going on with Julia. Yeah. Um, I do need to figure out why she's bringing strange men back to the house in the middle of the day. Could be anything. Yeah, um, it, I do love how Julia drops her smile in this scene like some like a customer service rep just getting off of a call like her (laughs) she has become uh much more comfortable with murder at this point oh yeah because this guy is this guy's only real line is like i get lonely sometimes and it's like yeah dude understandable like this dude's not a shitty guy like the first guy like he's just still lonely dude and uh you know, Julia has hardened to the point that it doesn't doesn't matter. Nope. She's here to yeah. make this dude. This dude's probably looking for a strong woman. And he found one. But not <laughs> yeah. what he for. She, she needs some D and preferably not like bloody pulpy D. You know, so she's mm. gotta gotta finish this situation up. Get all the murders she's got to gotta pull out, out of the system here. So to speak. Yes. Uh, yeah, Julia inadvertently stumbles on, uh, or Kirsty inadvertently stumbles on Julia ineffectively killing this guy. Um, he, you know, stumbles out into the hallway half drained, and uh, Kirsty sees Frank. Uh, Frank just can't not be awful for like two minutes. Um, he's like, "Oh, this is Kirsty. You've grown up. This is your uncle Frank? You know." come to daddy and it's like immediately like from zero to incest and fit in like 50 seconds yeah just continues to show frank's complete lack of uh any sort of self-preservation reflex whatsoever that he's like he's been i know he's been beyond the pale like he's been in multiple universe but seriously Mm. though in what universe would he think that this shit would land? Like, he has yeah. no skin. 
And he's like wearing a blade. He's like threatening her with a knife with no skin. And he's like, hey, Christy, it's your Uncle Frank. You don't have to be afraid. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm slurping with a straw noise that you don't make a good case for yourself there. <laughs> yeah. Out of this Mr. Bean, like precious little man. <laughs> he's I mean, like, I'm still amazed that honestly anyone's reaction, even Julia's, was like, oh, yes, I will listen instead of just screaming setting the house on fire hitting everything with his shovel until it dead until it was dead well like, i think it shows you like how much she herself is also like seeking extremity and sensation and like needs that herself as well like it isn't just frank who had that level of desire yeah she she knew frank oh, showed her those sights and then you know the cenobites showed frank the sights such unbelievable sights indescribable yes. feelings yeah <clears throat> pain and pleasure a whole new world um, uh shining shimmering splendid <laughs> uh Christy, to her credit is uh is a good final girl as we mentioned she uh touches the box and frank freaks out about that and she's like oh fuck you want this you want this all right fine let me throw this out the fucking window and then run I thought she was going to throw it right in his face. Like, just peg him right in the nose with it. Yeah, but then he would get it. Yeah, she throws it out the window, runs, and then grabs it on her way out. Um, And then (laughs) I'm a little unclear on exactly what happens to her after this, because she runs down the street and uh, encounters some nuns and various other people and then gets real tired and takes a nap. Just has Uh, herself a nice little terror coma. Yeah, (laughs) She's like covered in the blood that had seeped out of Frank onto her, which is so gross. Yeah. Um, and she, she's got the box and she's lying in the street and the most random people in the world, like it's the most random set of people that I can even think of, um, are like, hey, you okay? And then she wakes up in the worst hospital ever. Yes. Yeah. I kept thinking that this was some sort of setup, like (laughs) that she had fallen into some sort of like Cenobite world and they were, you know, just sort of like pulling that lure on her for for a minute here. Because it's like, clearly there's something wrong with this fucking hospital. (laughs) The nurse is watching the movie of like carnations blooming. 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 (laughs) Like, we're just going to watch some blood imagery because we're uncanny. We're not going to tell you why you're locked up or what your symptoms were. We're not going to recognize any of your rights. And then, of course, the Hellraiser 2 deals with really abusive hospital shit in it as well. So it's sort Mm of sets up for that. The usual status quo for a final girl in a sequel is to then be in a mental hospital for the events of the first movie. I wonder, like, how many. I wonder if you made a list as how many horror movie sequels you would find with that setup. Yeah. yeah uh, well, Laurie yeah. Strode is just in an actual hospital in the second Halloween. Um, but <laughs> that, that happens the, the next day after Halloween. So. Fucking Jennifer's body manages to do it all in one movie. Yeah. yeah. So um, she's, in this, she's in this hospital, and the first thing that they ask her about she's like i want to call my dad and they're like no tell us about your rubik's cube yeah what the fuck (laughs) what is this what is this cool game and uh she's like i don't fucking know i want to call my dad and they're like "Mm, we'll get you a phone later 
you need to take a take a break and think about what you want to tell us about this Rubik's cube. Why don't you play with that for a while? It's so such bad medicine, my God. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so she does play with the Rubik's Cube for a while and figures out the puzzle box element of it. And the wall slides open and uh, turns into a very long hallway. And uh, so she decides, sure, let's explore that. Um, <laughs> and uh, as she walks down the hallway, she encounters a uh, large um, penis with a stinger and legs and teeth, um, just climbing along the hallway trying to bite and stab and everything else here uh this is this is it's a weird a phallic scorpion thing yeah. yeah it's like a penis scorpion yeah, yeah. it's a very meaty scorpion <laughs> yeah um we're gonna just doff our hats to mr hr geeger hey really geeger um good job that's not he wasn't him but he definitely had something to do with these designs <laughs> Um, somebody saw that uh, and was like, "But that's the other thing too. Is that this is not this is not a Giger. These are not Giger designs. They are separate. Um, they are identifiably separate, and they're they're also incredibly masterful. So like, yeah, like it's not just a knockoff. It's it's um, another example of like this culture informing itself and and you know enriching." Uh, working from an image and enriching that image um yeah and this creature um i think she i think she defiantly rubik's cubes at it to, yes yeah uh which becomes a thing later where her her move <laughs> is like i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna solve the cube at you <laughs> and cool sparks come out of it yeah, this this thing is surprising. Like this thing is surprisingly tense if her running from this thing that basically seems to be something out of a, a Jim Henson's nightmare. <laughs> like it's a very scary whatever the fuck it is. Yeah. I think there's yeah, a name is, for it. This is if Jim Henson was on acid. This is what would show Eager. up. Eager. Um So there's there is a name for this thing i'm gonna look it up but um yeah and then she she closes the 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 wall and then continues to mess with the cube and there's this incredible transition where she's looking at the bricks on the wall and then the mortar of the bricks becomes transparent and has this uh, ethereal light through it and it is you know it is practical effects again you know, just of, of a simple um, texture swap, but it is amazing looking. Yeah. And the, the Cinnabite family shows up at this point. This, I think, is the first like time we've really gotten a good look at them because like we see a little bit of them when Frank summons them initially. Um, but like we really get to see that, you know, we have the chatterer with the very, not, not much of them, we have face, but huge teeth. We've got the uh, the what they refer to as the the butterball cinnabite with uh, you know open stomach wound and exposed guts, um, and the female cinnabite, and then you know the lead cinnabite pinhead here, um, all sort of doing their thing. Then they explain a little bit more about what their thing is here. 
um, that they are voyagers. Uh, I can't remember the exact phrase, but they are, are voyagers uh, trying to find the the extremes of pain and pleasure, and they have Demons such sights to, to you. Angels to others. Yeah. But like old school, like Old Testament angels, where it's just uh, eyes where the eyes shouldn't be and impossible numbers of wings. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely, uh, well, they're not the ones that would say be not afraid because you definitely got to be afraid because you should definitely be afraid. <laughs> yeah, be afraid. Be very afraid. Be my guest. <laughs> <laughs> just, that's worse <laughs> Freaking... yeah Look, i just want to talk about i just want us to talk about when frank becomes larry yes oh so, yes there's a bit here with the with the cinnabites you know the cinnabites talk about themselves and they introduce themselves and um to get through this uh you know christy's crying and and pinhead's like don't cry it's a waste of suffering mm, tears and um and there's a bit where the 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 chattering the chattering mouth cenobite puts its fingers in her mouth which is a, maybe a little trigger for some people because it is you know like just to kind of keep her from um Plus, i mean he has screaming. to be so unhygienic where have those yeah. been everything's infected on them guys um, oh yeah. yeah yeah and i think that's the point for them but um uh and she and like, she pulls a canny move here which is like oh you guys want to like torture and kill me it seems like i've met somebody recently who seems to have been tortured and killed do you guys know a guy named frank because they're like oh yeah because a guy named frank She's he sharp. seems to have gotten away from you guys and you know that doesn't seem like something you'd be into. So maybe let me live and I'll get you Frank. Um, which is, is an incredibly, incredibly canny move on her part. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then he is uh, on point with these demons. Yeah. Then, you know, leads in a bite is like, well, if we can hear from him then maybe we'll, we'll let you do that. And they, uh, she, Female Cenobite says yes, but if you but if you cheat us, and you get the incredible line read from from uh, Pinhead here, which is the "We'll tear your soul apart" bit. Yeah, which is Wait one of the two best line deliveries in this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we know what the other one was. <laughs> yeah, the, the the other one is is yet to come here still. So the other one is the other one is. If you've heard industrial music, you've heard it. <laughs> the and other it one was is... an improv, apparently. Yeah, it's really, it appears, really. Apparently, that it. line is supposed to be "fuck you." Um, yeah. And oh my god, what Andrew Robinson came up with is so much. So much. Better. Better. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh my god! Holy shit! All the credit in the world to Andrew Robinson. Yeah. Yeah, um, that would have been a very different scene had it ended with with that. Fuck Which I yeah. feel like it's the difference between uh, this movie and some of Clive Barker's other movies. Is yeah. like the Nightbreed is definitely a movie where they would have just said "fuck you." Like it, it doesn't quite rise to this level. It doesn't rise to this level though, but it's Nightbreed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, well, well, I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Yes. Um, yeah, so uh, 
uh, yeah, she's she makes this deal with them, and then we we get back to uh, the scene um, scene Alana was talking about. Uh, Julia finally decides that uh, she needs to to take um, Larry up to. There, there's something that he needs to see up in the attic, and she just really thinks he should see it himself. She doesn't want to tell him about it, and the next time we see Larry, he is very clearly not Larry anymore. Um, he is swapped out. He is Frank with Larry's skin swapped over him. With a visible seam around his uh, his forehead. Yeah. And then we get evil Andrew Robinson. Yeah. He's and, no good. It's just a humble tailor. Yeah, this, this performance is so good. And I think it's, it's amplified by how like, how kind of decent and goobery larry is that like oh yeah the as soon contrast. as he switches to frank it's like so clear in the acting that you know andrew robinson is just the, he's living the for this larry larryness makes the frank that much franker exactly yeah. Yeah. and like also like how how generically heterosexual larry is <laughs> is a testament to how queer garrick is because the fact that Andy Robinson as a performer is so clearly portraying Garrick in Deep Space Nine as gay, which is like a choice that's even more highlighted when you see him being like, I am going to be so heterosexual right now in get a generic way. Get you an actor who can do both. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> but again, if you want to hear like about an hour of me and another expert talking about Garrick, that would be the first pilot episode of Deep Space Dive, my new Star Trek podcast. Do you anyway. just talk about Garrick? Because I just I would episode love to... one is just Garrick. Well, yeah, but I mean, like all the rest of the episodes about Garrick, because I'm sure there you are could future make... episodes about Garrick, but the show is not only about Garrick. Like the I next episode is there too. The next episode is about the union organizing episode with like another union fellow union organizer as a guest. Nice. Um, okay. Anyway. All right. So. Um... So Christy shows up because she's she's freaked out about her dad. Um, and then her dad is, quote unquote, fine, despite he's got like a bunch of blood um, at, on his uh, at his hairline. Yeah, she. this is the one point in this movie where I'm like, when did Christy get stupid? Because she walks in and this guy just like he just has blood in a line all across his hairline and is clearly is clearly acting weird. Um, I mean, everybody in this movie at this point is acting weird and covered in blood, so it's probably she just like doesn't really notice. Um, you know, she just saw the Cenobites, and she, that probably is a bit of a whiplash that she's not going to be as like observant as long as it's a friendly face. Yeah, and then Frank, as Larry claims to have killed Frank, and shows her the gooey skeleton upstairs, who he says is Frank who's smoking at this point i guess i don't know how it's gooey and on fire That's i guess the, whatever the process is where you peel the skin off of somebody is, is somehow heat intensive it's like I, mean, I guess like if it was all wintry but it's like how hot is this body how cold is this attic i don't want to know it's it things shouldn't be both gooey and steamy <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's something to be said about the 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 horror of like steaming guts, and there's that, and also maybe just Frank did it so fast that it was just like the the speed of it left like a friction burn. 
Either that or like Frank did the skinning, then smoked a bunch of cigarettes and just threw the still lit cigarettes like beneath the corpse. That's and very that's Frank. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you just extinguish all the cigarettes in Larry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Say smoking is bad for your health, especially when it's your own flesh you're smoking. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, and the Cenobites show up only, only showing themselves at this point to Kirsty. And uh, they're like, Hey, we want to meet the guy who did this. Like, yeah. whatever happened to this guy I over here? Love, we are into that. I love <laughs> evil Larry. Or like eat Frank as Larry pretending to not be evil. Like, really? Frank's killing people. Like, what a shocker that is. Wow. That's how you know that it's not Larry, because Larry would be like, oh, that Frank <laughs> killing people. No, not not not, 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 not on fire. I my favorite bit, and I don't like I don't know if it's in the script or not, that like after they everybody else walks out of the room at one point, like Frank as Larry does this thing where he's like stretching the eye socket and just like he I looks like he's trying to get the eye right and he's just moving around his eyeball. Yes. And it was like, oh, so such a creepy I, touch. I love that because that's also just such good filmmaking. Like that's an actor just doing like touching his eye, touching and rubbing his eye, plus some sound effects. Yeah, and those two things combined just gives you an absolutely just this completely unnerving effect. Can I, I'm, I've been meaning to say this at some point throughout this, uh, but I watched this movie uh the, the monitor of my computer might not be the ideal place to watch it, but I watch it with mm. headphones and I have an incredible like uh, amount of admiration for the sound editing in this movie oh, because yeah. like everything is so creepy. The sounds are so, uh, they, they seem so like right, even though like if you're looking at it, like clearly maggots don't make the sound that maggots make in this movie. But like yeah. when they do it, it's like, oh, that, that like makes me feel ill in my soul like yeah. the sound that those maggots are making like and the the same thing with you know him him moving around his eyeball with so many of the like uh blood and guts things that happen in this movie and the 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 sounds that things make along with Lots you know the of... soundtrack that we've noted is just so it it's adds so much atmosphere to this movie that you know it's, it's missing from things. a lot of things Lots yeah. of things splorch in this movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Things make awful noises in this movie. Ooh. If trying to make a comic out of this, the most difficult part would be writing out the sound effects. Where it's like, yeah. hey, what's the sound of a body full of maggots tipping over? <laughs> Yeah, and it's hard because, like, with sound effects and comics, you get into this, like, you know, kind of funny word, the onomatopoeia. Like, that's that's a big thing in comics for me is that when you have sort of your rote set of of um, sound effects words, um, you know, we get into uh, Batman territory. Um, hmm. And I, I personally love how often the word crack a doom shows up in comics yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, as um, if that were an actual word it sounds like it's a time of a very metal kind of day like i'll see you with the crack of doom <laughs> that's uh <laughs> that's when Folsa doom gets up yeah <laughs> 
love uh. <laughs> um yeah the the sound design in this movie i think you know is part of the the incredible atmospheric landscape of of horror that goes on like you know with with uh frank's animation with um even like they do that straw slurping sound when he's like um gaining the essence of people and it's even though it's like it's still i mean sorry but (laughs) it's very good um it's you know it's somehow like just shy of campy that it's it it does make your soul feel gross yeah Mm. this movie it's so gross i feel like for as over the top as a lot of things are like it it's too legitimately scary to be campy yeah um and you know that can be campy because you know hellraiser three hell on earth exists but um this movie is just so on point um so yeah so now we're 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 jumping between larry frank uh and julia and um emily are you saying you have a problem with the movie where we learned that pinhead is pinhead because he world war one to two hard what i mean it's i sometimes forget about scenes in uh hellbound i just remember the end and that was cool so when we when we talk about that we'll talk about that yeah and we're we're at the the final straightaway of this movie now um where uh i i feel like kirsty refuses to give her dad up because she still for some reason thinks her dad is the the one that you know killed frank here and all frank has to do to get away with this is just not be a fucking creep for five minutes right so what you're saying can't do it so jeremy so what you're saying is frank has no chance frank never stood a chance he was never going to be able to pull it off his only chance was to not be a fucking creep for five minutes no impossible can't be done yeah and he he immediately uh starts hitting on his uh his niece who he's pretending to be the father of at this moment to paraphrase van jones today is the day frank truly became larry he says, uh, come to daddy, which she recognizes as being Frank. And, um, and certainly recognizes as not being her father because yeah, he's not, not that kind of creep. What an yeah. awful catchphrase. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The worst catchphrase. Yeah. Speaking of industrial music, there's the, uh, well, I'll, I'll I'm nodding vigorously. We'll make it, we should put together a playlist. Actually, we should do a playlist. We should put together a Spotify playlist after this to share with folks. Oh my God. Ooh. Speaking of my language. sites to show you Mm -hmm. yeah we're gonna do it yeah so um they she tries to run away and julia stops her and is setting her up for frank to stab her uh (laughs) kirsty pulls the move nobody ever expected which is moving uh when he tries (laughs) to stab her and jukes on out of there he stabs uh julia instead and rather than just let this body go to waste he decides to go ahead and, and drain her a bit while he's at it Look, if um, you're going to be something, be efficient. Yeah. <laughs> there she is the whole time. Come on. I mean, that's probably what he was going to do with the whole time. What have we told him? Yeah. I mean, he probably would have banged her a few times first. But, you know, yeah. uh, he has such sights he, to see. He, um, so, Kirstie. Almost, 
Just I was going to say something to say, you know what? Let's not say it. <laughs> uh, Be like Christy. Yeah, she she runs and hides uh, upstairs in uh, the the second room upstairs, not the third room, the which nobody room. ever goes yeah. to. Yes, the the corpse disposal room. Um, that was my favorite. There's uh, clearly three doors, and then every time they're like, "Welp, we check two. I guess there's nothing else for us to check." <laughs> <laughs> she does open a closet, and a Jesus statue jumps out at her as one of the the like the biggest jump scares in this movie. <laughs> it, is, it is the only jump scare in the entire movie is a Jesus statue coming out of their closet. Yeah, which is just how so- gay this movie is. <laughs> um, Thank you. <laughs> Jesus would have been and, such a good scene to bite. And like, but you know, like we were talking about this earlier, there's so many weird like Christian statue, Catholic statuary things visible in the house that they move into. So you sort of understand that that was the context, the religious context of their childhood. Of, of Larry and Frank is one where they're surrounded by these religious icons that are like kind of bloody. Larry yeah. of all the like, for all his general goofiness, when they first go in there and there's all these like Jesus statues and uh, Mary and everything like that, Larry's like, yeah, I'm not really into this. <laughs> Don't worry <laughs> about it. I'm not into that. <laughs> That's right. He, when they first get in there and there's all this crazy shit everywhere. Larry's like, that's all Frank. Just this, this is all Frank. Don't don't worry about it. And Julia's Frank's like, real into, I'm not. I not so much religion, just into the paintings, just really likes Jesus covers. Yeah. He likes the variant covers of the Bible. <laughs> really, Larry was yeah. like a buddy Jesus. Larry's the buddy Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Bloody yeah, Christ so... sounds like the kind of drink that Larry that Frank would order. Yeah. I don't know what's in it, but Frank does. Yeah, Kirsty discovers one of the uh, one of the bodies um, full of maggots up there, Um, and uh, I did wonder how they were disposing the bodies, and apparently they're not. Yeah, they just put them in the corpse room. Got the blood room. Got the corpse room. Got the bathroom. Which got the Jesus closet. Again, how long were the corpses there? Where Larry was? These people really aren't like us. Where Larry, like, how long was this happening? Where Larry was like, "Huh, honey, you smell something," and she was like, "Nope, all in your head." And he was like, "Okie dokie." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just rats. I mean, all the when he sees all the rats nailed on the walls. I mean, there you go. He's like, "You see, honey, it was just some rats nailed to the wall. <sighs> Nothing to worry about." Yeah, these Joanna are fresh Green ass corpses there. too. Um. Yeah, so uh, the, she found finds the the corpse full of maggots, uh, and just, uh, and then she she leaves and gets attacked by Frank, and then seemingly unintentionally leads Frank to the Cenobites, um, which should have been a number one move for her, I think, at the point that she discovered that you know Frank was living in her dad's skin, um, at which point like. And he tries to kill her, and then the uh, Cenobites just start hooking him up with hooks, um, you know, throwing throwing hooks at him here and there, and uh, pulling him as as far apart as he'll go, stretching out. They, they have an incredible, incredible effect here of stretching out his face. Um, yeah. And that is where we, we get the line we were referring to earlier. Do you want to handle that one, Emily? Jesus wept. <laughs> yeah. Which apparently 
That was just supposed to be fuck you. Uh, but Andrew Andrew Robinson, Robinson, is a hero. Yeah, Andrew Robinson uh, very much improved that scene. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. And oh, the, they have like some kind of effect on his voice. Like again, it's like a subtle effect, but he's just saying it all slow, and he's like, and he almost like with relish. Jesus, yes. Jesus. Um, and uh, if, I mean, and way to he... nail home that pleasure pain paradox. Yeah, fuck, he nailed it. And then he exploded. Yeah, I mean, he nailed it, they, and they nailed him, and there were nails everywhere, and and then Trent Reznor was like, yes. And then... Um, <laughs> and wouldn't uh, you know it, the Cenobites are not good for their word. Nope. Well, they didn't really <laughs> sign a contract. They're like, she's like, hey, you want Frank? And they're like, yes. And she's like, I'll lead you to him. And uh and they're like you better and then they don't say anything about we'll we'll let you go they'll say they just say you better and then they don't kill her right there yeah she tried she was like oh if i lead him you gotta let me go and they're like we'll definitely maybe (laughs) yeah we'll definitely follow you to him how about that yeah (laughs) leave it open-ended yeah but she does Uh, successfully buy herself some time and she's able to use it to her advantage Yes, yeah. she does. And, get rid- and, and save the world from Frank's ever-increasing appetite. And then she yeah. solves the... I'm really not sure how the puzzle box gets solved or what constitutes solving it. I don't think that we need... We, we should know. Right, well, it's a like, box. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I don't want that responsibility. It's like, I mean, any given puzzle box, we're like, no, fuck you, I'm not summoning those sex demons. He's just like Will Smith mm-hmm. in the pursuit of happiness in here, though. You know, he's just- <laughs> Listen that just, shit up. She's <laughs> just going to town. Yeah, yeah, every every the, one of the Cenobites keeps showing up and she's like, ha, I'm going to solve this shit at you. And they they get the worst effect in the movie. Um, they get, you know, yellow drawn on lines and disappear. They were from the holodeck all along. <laughs> it didn't bother me. Like at that point, though, I feel like the movie was like ready. I wasn't. It didn't bother me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the movie is done at this point. I this did is... like how it did. It did feel like oh, she's destroying them. It felt like she's sending them back to where she came from because this isn't a force you can ever truly hope to defeat. Just delay. Yeah, she's yeah. she's dispersing them. Um, and I feel like the the drawn on special effect, like yes, compared to all of the practical practical effects uh, up to now, you know, it is the most like special effect that we've seen, but the Cenobites are so supernatural in their being that, and we've accepted them as super, like as, as incredibly supernatural. So like crazy magical effects don't feel out of place here. I think we should be able to say super, supernatural, super, Mm -hmm. ultra, super, super, supernatural. uh, They are super, supernatural. It's like if Superman had magic, he'd be a super, supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. And then this, this quickly turns into the, uh, the final sequence from Metroid. Uh, where she has to get out of the collapsing building as it is falling apart while simultaneously solving puzzles at the bad guys, um, and and except for except for shade except for shades, he doesn't actually get sent back. Rocks just fall on him. Yeah, which I think he might be into, and I think it's okay because shades like was definitely <laughs> the, the one scene of bite that I would actually like go have a drink with. 
It should be like, honestly, that should have been fucking Hellraiser 2 is Shades like digs himself out of the rubble. And then it's just like, uh, well, I guess I'm just going to go chill in this middle England suburb. And like, yeah. have, and like, I maybe get enrolled at a local college, like me to like have a whole little Shades adventure. I'm going to go find Jim Thurlwell. We're going to make some dope beats and, uh, you know, like record me talking backwards. It's going to be great. <laughs> um but uh yeah shades r.i.p shades um yeah. nobody else disappears shades has a house fall on him yeah uh this is where uh this is where boy shows back up steve uh is back steve. steve's here <laughs> he's steve. here steve's here he showed up the only worthwhile thing he does is he gets swatted away so Kirsty can further establish herself as the unquestionable main character main protagonist yeah steve's mm-hmm. like come on let's get out of the house and uh they start to get out of the house and the penis with teeth shows back up to try and steal the uh the puzzle or to kill, try and kill them and or steal the puzzle box from them um kirsty has to you know swat steve away so that she can grab that and solve the puzzle box at him too um and then they they run out as the the house is i don't know Holy- burning it glows and <laughs> the house is running out of special effects money um, yeah, i was gonna say did a fire actually start at any point no <laughs> it's just imploding it's it's it's, okay. it's it's house of ushering right like this is you yeah. know, the end of the corrupted dirty house so it's gonna just fall in on itself like at the end of the fall of the house of Rut usher what's funny to me is we see like what feels like lights coming on inside the house and then there's a weird transition where we're then looking at some rubble where a single chair is on fire. <laughs> yeah. like, it's I guess it's the one thing they could afford to burn. They it's were like, clearly Aurora Borealis isolated in one house. Yeah, it was like a singularity of, of you know, BDSM. Yeah, that- and Kirsty makes... The single dumbest decision that she makes in this movie, which is like, let me throw this metal puzzle box in the fire. Clearly, that's <laughs> going to do what I want it to do. In this um, small fire of, of uh, yeah. small bit of fire. Yes, this this <laughs> fiery chair, yeah. the single chair that's on fire. Um, and so then our, uh, this is a whole section of people just returning to the movie. Uh, creepy visor guy shows back up walks into the fire picks up the the puzzle box and then turns into some sort of giant like a dragon dragon like a bone bat skeleton thing like it honestly would have been more at home in evil dead three army of darkness yeah the dragon was the least like innovative design of the film but at this point in the movie i was just like okay at least he wasn't you know just a a person experiencing homelessness that is probably not white at this point it's like i guess you need a skeletal dragon in order to do the evil demon puzzle box of making sure blockbuster returns came in on time (laughs) love it but look i mean like you know a lot of these images that we're describing that sound outlandish are really quite you know beautiful and striking in the context of the movie they work in that space this movie kicks ass like i like 
I love this movie. I thought this was such a well-executed movie from top to bottom. Yeah, I'm 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 fine with the crazy skeletal demon bat dragon. Uh, it's then that the movie then ends again with another scene of exoticism and racism that you know started the movie that got on my nerves. Um, yeah, I was like, cool, let's end on the demon dragon bat thing. Um, but no, they decide to go back to the opium den or, den or whatever it is, and you know, imply that the box is continuing to being passed on to further people for you know pleasure and it like teleports itself through time and space to return back to the same orientalist bazaar it was in before yeah yeah because it stands outside of time yes um yeah it has that framing thing is the way yeah, well, the dragon, I, th- I kind of like how the dragon skeleton shows up to pick up the box where she's like, I guess I'll burn it in a sm- very small fire. And then the dragon's like, now look, <sighs> okay, <laughs> I'll take care of this. Ah! And then, then it frames back into the puzzle box. And then, you know, as if it was, it was all, it was like the devil's advocate, spoilers. Where, UPS like, really does pick up anywhere, you know? <laughs> I think I saw that that dragon <laughs> dropping off my uh, um, bookshop order. Yeah, it's when Amazon um, has drones. UPS has Draco liches. <laughs> um, all right, so that's that's the end of this film, um, such as it is. Um, let's talk a little bit about our our issues here and how, how it deals with progressive issues in this film whether it does um the, the first one I'm, i don't really know what we're going to say about this one is uh, how does this deal with uh mental illness mental health physical disability uh, those sorts of questions does it address it in any meaningful way do you think uh, people that it see- doesn't pathologize people's perversions as being a product of them being unwell like it is saying that this is a part of people's like it's it, you know what i mean like it could have very much gone down that road and it doesn't yeah absolutely like the the movie um does connect uh sexual outlet and sexual gratification to something that is a a need and not a um uh what's the word i'm looking for it's just it's a it's a regular person need and not a like a a a symptom of some kind of dysfunction you know um it there there are you know you can read certain things if if you were to read this like a morality play which i think is not not really what it is you know there is certain um comeuppance that comes with these characters but they it's it has to do with more about murder you know the than the um sexual gratification yeah um julia's needs to have like rough kinky sex are portrayed as pretty sympathetic um which i think it makes her character that much more interesting um and and that as related to mental health or they don't really explicitly make connections but it does take a step in normalizing that as something that is not um uh, um, an illness but just you know an interest or a uh, you know 
uh, just another human yeah. uh, need. I think it's it's interesting looking at this movie because I feel like it's going to look different depending on where you're looking from because there is you could very easily see the the sexuality aspect as part of a, a slippery slope argument in this which is you know she she indulges that and very quickly she goes you know to being a murderer and, and everything else in the name of her sexuality but I think you can also see it as a, a question of you know, her having to closet and hide and be unfulfilled and what that, yeah, what yeah. that does to a person. This is one of those movies that like, if the, if this is being made by like a straight person who's like also, especially like a straight person who's not kinky would be a different movie. Like mm-hmm. yeah. the authorship of the film is being from a queer and kinky person impacts the way the story is told. And a lot of the time people will see stuff like this and be like, oh, I want to do something like that. And then the person is like, yeah, but you are not them and you're not going to do this in the same level of delicate uh, yeah. sensitivity that, that Clive Barker did. And that's when they get their shit in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I, I think leads to my, our second question, which is uh, how does this film deal with and support LGBTQIA plus people and themes? And I think it's difficult to say that they're is anybody who is textually uh, queer in this movie? This is, but it is. But Clive Barker, I feel like, is the queer character of this, this movie. Is, yes. <laughs> this movie is very much one of those movies that feels queer without having textual queerness in it. Yeah. Like, and another thing is when we're looking at the photos in, uh, that Frank left behind in his little sexy photo box. If this movie was being made by a heterosexual person in the year 2020, one of those photos would have been of Frank having sex with a man, 100%. He would have been a predatory bisexual pervert because this is made by a queer man in 1987. All of those photos are of Frank with women and Mm -hmm. like- Some with ninja masks. and, 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 and but it's but it's women in some weird ass masks but it's women yeah you know like i, I think that, that someone was like we need ninja masks for the sex photo <laughs> get me ninja get me ninja masks <laughs> um but you know what i mean so like it, it, it it's deliberate like it's it you know like the, it's deliberately like not having frank just be like okay this is like a dirty bisexual man which you know they would have been doing yeah I mean, would there be a way, do you think, to portray Frank here as bisexual without it, without the bisexuality coming out, coming off as part of Frank's no. issue? No. Well, you know, the so. whole solution to that is if all the other characters are bi and they're yeah. not creeps, it, yeah. then yes. You yeah. know? But, but it is, again, but it is also like, it's sympathetic and it's, compl- it's complicated. Like it has a complicated it's not like this is not like a chick tract in one direction or the other it's a complicated movie and like you know queer film critics have come down on different and different opinions of the movie over the years i think it's much more positively regarded now than it was at the time Uh, and actually doing this episode has really broken my heart that i don't have a jstor account because there's like so many academic papers written about how hellblazer from this like specifically from like a queer cinema perspective um and I know I've read, st- I know I read stuff in college, but I'm just blanking on some of the specifics. It, it just feels fundamentally queer. Like, yeah, yeah. The queer gaze, I don't, but. 
one of those things where just the way it films people, the way it lets the, it portrays them, lets them be, approaches sexuality. Like, again, even if no one's displaying like overt queerness, it just feels queer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't, it decidedly doesn't have a, at least a straight male gaze because it doesn't spend, even in the sex scenes, a lot of time just going over Julia's body. Um, you know, whereas there is a significant amount of sex in this movie. I mean, uh, Frank's dick is definitely in this movie. Uh, and, you know, Frank, Julia is, is significantly less naked in this movie than I mean, he is. The sexualization, I mean, by a million miles, the sexiest character in this movie and the one the movie is most interested in depicting as sex as sexy is a uh, flashback frank yeah absolutely and all of the stuff i mean you know the the there is rough sex but a lot of the the exchange between frank and julia in that flashback is like more romance novel than porn you know mm, yeah um you know that the d- dramatic cutting of her bra strap and that you know that sort of inching towards um you know the line of you know are we going to cross this line are we going to cross that line um yeah i don't know where the chin kiss uh occurs in that um that's equation, but... across this line into chin play Ooh, yeah. yeah we got chin play um but still it's it's um once i've grown it's very dramatic that's when he knew he had to go find the demon box because once you grow bored of chin play there's nowhere else to go <laughs> yeah that's it that's there that is the line right there um jesus wept <sighs> yeah so I, I i think it it deals with this really interestingly um Unfortunately, I do think we have to talk about the two things that it doesn't deal with well, uh, specifically uh, any sort of questions of race or social justice whatsoever. Like, oh, yeah, the depictions of race in this movie are bad. All the main characters are white. The only people who are of color are weirdly exoticized and or like the doctor who's really bad at his job. Yeah, right? yeah. Oh, like really bad at his job, but he's like the only other. He's like the only other black person. He's like, the only black person in the movie. Look, if the guy yeah. routinely just giving out the puzzle box isn't the same guy who sells Gizmo, then it's at least the same franchise. But this is an important thing, though. Like, do you want any of these characters to be people of color, really? Because, like, I I want the scene in the bazaar market to not be racist like that. But I don't think any of this cast of five people is particularly well served by, like, as a representative of diversity in some way. Do you know what I mean? And there's, like, five characters. Yeah. I mean, I I think, you know, Steve could have been anything. Um, That's true. That's true. Steve, Uh, then you're like, oh, but then he's ineffectual. You know know what I mean? Steve could have been anything, could describe him for more than... (laughs) Steve really could have been anything. (laughs) In Kirstie's case, we never meet Kirstie's mom. Uh, so, you know, Kirstie could She's be dead. a mix of, of anything. That's true. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there's there's definitely room to do more there. But, yeah, at, at least, I mean... Look, mm, to be fair, this is a British beginning movie. And ending scene. We had the original, uh, like, with the original accents, maybe we'd have, like, whoa, a British guy and an Irish guy. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. All right. But you know, we didn't get that. But no. They're all from Middle England. 
all from they're all they all have the same dubbed dubbed accent of nothing yeah it's a mid-atlantic accent not like they're from the mid-atlantic but they're from the middle of the atlantic of the atlantic (laughs) (laughs) um well if you want to make people really pissed off you can talk about linguistic drift and point out that Kevin Costner technically has the most historically accurate Robin Hood accent. Oh no. If you want to make every historian very angry. <laughs> I don't know if um, I want to unlock that puzzle box. Womp womp. Yeah, I, I, Aggressively Costner. I, I love to believe that uh, most, most early English royals sounded like they came from, you know, the back country of North Carolina, so... Um, I always imagine them with specifically a thick Boston accent. <laughs> oh, no. Hey, watch where um, you're going. I'm trying to be a royal over here. I just want to see somebody do. I just want Marky Mark doing Henry V, you know? Oh, uh, that would oh be God. great. Oh, oh who do, can we make that happen? Oh, my God. No. Mark, Marky Mark does Henry V. Okay. Holy shit. What about Henry VIII? He's rehabilitated yeah, himself, VIII. his career far too much for my liking. so i guess if i mentioned marky mark i should mention convicted of hate crime mark Wahlberg. yes i guess i guess we could do uh i mean you can do a reasonable uh ben affleck right yeah like with his his horrible boston accent can do henry the fifth i think the only thing he's been convicted of is card counting and getting kicked out of a bunch of casinos he said some heinous stuff i think I can't remember. I seem to remember mostly him saying decent stuff. I do remember him calling out uh, what's his face on HBO on his show. Um, Bill Maher. Oh. Bill Maher. Oh, well. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Although Bill Maher, Bill Maher on TV Bill, on Bill Maher's show. Bill Maher should be good. called out. He should constantly be called out. But yeah, absolutely. So yeah, this has I, been Bill Mark is this shitbag corner and um <laughs> yes Bill Mar and Mark Wahlberg are sitting together in the shitbag corner. Yeah. Um while we're here, let's discuss Demons this movie's discuss, this movie's uh how it deals with class, um, which is mm-hmm. not good. Mm-hmm. Um the, the only real thing that could be interpreted as any sort of discussion of class is the uh seemingly homeless uh character who was also i guess a demon bat dragon thing um made of bones um, like kirsten's reaction to the guy is also like, julia is always saying like well at least maybe this is better than when we lived in brooklyn which of course i take personally oh yeah <laughs> I, I did have my notes like how dare you shit on brooklyn but yeah also, she is was yes. kirsten you like this was she just yelling at every homeless person she saw in brooklyn in the <laughs> 80s that is a great question. She didn't yell. Did she yell at him? She did. No, yell she at just that sort guy. of was terrified. But he was eating crickets. Anyway. Well, yeah, she did yell at him because yeah, she I don't was think like, he yelled at him until he pay ate for crickets those. In, in her store. <laughs> that is your you're a you cricket thief. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's valid. I mean, like, if anybody, if like Julia walked into that store and started eating crit- crickets, I would yell at her. <laughs> um she i will say that uh she also christy also just cold shouldered the fuck out of that lady with her parrot um <laughs> like a customer service badass it's true it was good yeah um so i guess the the one other big question here is uh 
is this movie feminist? Yeah. Yeah, aspects. I've seen, like, the most feminist horror movie I've seen this past year was George Romero's Season of the Witch from 1971. However, this movie (laughs) is, like, you know, for a horror movie from the 80s, fairly feminist. Like, it's not, it doesn't punish her for having sex, and it doesn't, and the woman isn't an idiot, and it doesn't hate, it's not, it doesn't, like, actually... Like, it would be so easy. Somebody could totally write a thesis about this movie as being anti-sex, but it's so clearly not. Like, Mm -hmm. you could make this whole case for it, but then if you actually see the movie, it's so clearly not. It's much more sensual than that. So therefore, it's reasonably feminist. How about that? It's not like, oh my God, badass feminist movie, but it's reasonably feminist. Yeah, I think it helps that, again, you have, uh, again, Kiersey is competent, uh, Kylie and I love that we get to see her be compassionate and caring towards her father, but also very sharp, creative, resourceful, and strong. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have her as a protagonist, and then, I mean, Julia is a very complex antagonist, but I think a lot that her sexual unfulfillment is presented as something sympathetic and not a sign of like her inherent wickedness even if it still does lead her to do terrible things. I think it's um, plainly said, I think that the, the women in this movie have the most agency. Yeah. Um, this movie is driven by their actions and their, their motivations. Um, you know, Frank would not be anything more than a, a you know, emaciated flesh monster if it was not for Julia. Um, <laughs> Christy, thinks her way out of every situation that she's in except for maybe you know the very desperate situation of trying to uh save her remaining family member that she cares about deeply um and you know denial being a part of her not being able to recognize that her dad is a flesh monster but um the uh um the characters with the most substance are uh christy and julia absolutely um you know, Frank is a literal leech and he, um, you know, he is the sinner um, who just gets Julia caught up in his, uh, his dark fascination. Um, and uh, the, I don't know if the female Cenobite <laughs> really counts as representation. I mean, I, I appreciate but... that there is a female Cenobite, that we have yes. a female monster. Yes. Um, you know, I, I I love female monsters in these things, especially when they're not mm-hmm. defined by some sort of uh, archaic, problematic stereotype of, of, you know, what makes women monsters. Um, you know, of course, uh, Julia is in her own way a monster. Um, but, you know, the, oh. you can have these, the, this group of, um, you know, beasts from the the nether realm these horrible unknowable creatures that you know one of them is is female and uh, not sort of explicitly some sort of horrible stereotype is is pretty great that's true mm-hmm. she does not have hair she does not have eyelashes she does not have her tits out yeah um she does have her larynx out and it's pretty hot yeah she does have her vagina on her neck which is also her larynx she, maybe she speaks through her vagina. That kind of is is pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. 
but uh, she's also one of the more um, active Cenobites, mm-hmm. you know, being the only other one that could speak. Um, so. Yeah, and I, I like that she's, she's legit creepy, too. They, they don't... I, I really hate it when... I mean, this is a constant thing in comics when they take these steps to make female villains less villainous or, you know, less bad than the male ones. Uh, and there's never any moment of this where you're like, well, maybe this female Cenobite is actually an okay one. <laughs> like, maybe yeah. I can win her over to my side. <laughs> She's, it's she's a great a point, though. It's a great point, Jeremy. It is stupid as fuck when they do that. So, yeah. Yeah. Good point. Well, it's like when we were watching The Descent, um, and you have all of the ghouls in The Descent, and then you have the one female ghoul that has hair and boobs. Mm-hmm. And like boobs are one thing. Like, okay, yeah, they're they're you know mammalian human derivative, yes, but you know it's basically a sexy ghoul. And, you know, that's something that they could easily fall into. Um, And I've seen sexy girl pinhead. I've seen people draw sexy girl pinhead. And it's like, okay. I mean, it's, it is sexy. It is girl, but, and it is pinhead. I mean, if it's on the internet, there's going to be rule 63. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I did like sexy girl pinhead utilization of the designs in this, you know, in, in the maiden voyage of this movie is, uh, is significant. And that's important. Well, that said, uh, do we think this movie is worth seeing? Do we recommend people check it out? Of course, yes. Oh, oh yeah, this is a horror classic and for good reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually say, watched you know, it. Wear your headphones or have a good speaker system. But yeah, there's, there's a lot to experience here. Um, I, I watched it with a friend of mine who uh, is not usually into horror and they, you know, they're, they're probably one of my more squeamish friends, but they did enjoy it. Um, I have uh, recommended it a lot, but I would be careful about, you know, who, who you suggested to as always. Yeah. I mean, be upfront about the body horror thing because not everybody's mm-hmm. into that shit. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, how about this? Uh, if people like this, what kind of recommendations do we have for them to uh, continue from this point? Alana, do you have anything you would recommend? It is no way related to body horror whatsoever. But I did mention, again, my, my favorite movie I've seen this past year, which was Season of the Witch, um, George Romero, dark, you know, film from 1971. It's on, um, you can watch it online. It's on like, I don't know, it's on some streaming services, uh, is a remarkably feminist horror movie that uh, has got amazing 70s aesthetics and really has a sharp understanding of the specific ways, the specific ways in which men are terrible (laughs) and um, is really just like a disaffected housewife story. Um, It's like, it's like, yeah, it's like the 1970s, like awakening of a woman about the, her dissatisfaction with her life and what she's going to do about it. And it's really excellent. Um, so yeah, I believe, should just go watch that. I believe Allie brought that one up when we were talking about the craft and um, she was talking about, Would speaking of the way in which men's are hor- men are horrible, uh, how like the original release was like rebranded as soft porn because like they just didn't understand what he was doing um yeah they tried they the movie was been released with different names over time like it just never got its recognition 
but I'm just like amazed. I'm like super impressed that Romero like made the super feminist insightful movie in 1971, just like nailing it. An interesting guy, George Romero. Um, uh, Emily, what do you got? I noticed that my recommendation was the same as yours, Jeremy. So I'll leave you <laughs> with that one since we already talked about it. But there's a uh, speaking of season of the witch that reminds me of a fantastic movie. That's about werewolves called in the company of wolves. I believe it's mm. Werner Herzog or somebody. And it is an anthology movie that has incredible practical effects. And it is about a woman coming of age with this allegory of various kind of um, werewolf folk tales. Um, and it has some body horror. It has some, a lot of feminist um, messaging going on in there. I, uh, it's, it's kind of a meta story where you have a character being told a story and then there's a story told in that story. And it's an unusual uh, film, but incredibly worth watching. So that's um, in the company of wolves. I think it's from the 80s. Um, it's directed and, by Neil uh, Jordan, actually. Neil Jordan. I don't know where yeah. I got Werner Herzog. Yeah, Irish Irish filmmaker Neil Jordan was... Uh, man, that guy tries some interesting stuff, but sometimes it's the crime. Oh, game. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that also... Byzantium. Just, yeah, uh, and he also he's also a writer, and some of his uh, books are really, really interesting. Um I would like to say, Emily, if you haven't read it, um, In the Company of Wolves is based off of a story from Angela Carter's uh, The Bloody Chamber. Yes, which, yes, yes. Yeah, is is real, like, is some real wild feminist horror shit. Like, it's, it's very worth reading. It's a collection of short stories, and The Company of Wolves is adapted from one of the short stories in there. Yes. Um, thank you, because I, I know that I knew that it was adapted, but I couldn't remember the name of the book. Um, and if you really like body horror, um, check out the video work of Chris Cunningham, because hmm. um, that's uh, there's a lot of cool music videos. We talked a lot about industrial music and um, you know the the relationship it has with this the Clive Barker Hellraiser. Um, but uh, the um, the the especially the Apex Twin videos that Chris Cunningham does incredible again practical effects going on there um, really cool and just you know if you like the the images and don't really care too much about the plot <laughs> it's, um, it is incredible so there's that awesome uh, Ben what do you got you know what I'm gonna keep the body train rolling by <laughs> recommending John Carpenter's The Thing. Hell yes. Yes. Good ass movie. Um, that was probably the scariest movie that was made by a scariest American movie made at the time it was made, like for years, I think. Yeah. It is scary as fuck, and the practical effects are out of this world, and the body horror is the only thing around that gives this movie a run for its money. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one of the few movies, maybe the only movie that I've ever had like a full flail reaction to a jump scare in a movie before because they so deliberately set you up to know when the scare is coming and then subvert it like it's mm. oh it's incredible yeah I, I love the thing um i'm i'm gonna recommend uh emily and i were both 
immediately came to this conclusion, Nightbreed, which is uh, mm. the second movie that is directed uh, by, you know, the by Clive Barker, uh, also based on, you know, his, his own work. Nightbreed is, was a movie that was like almost impossible to find for a long time and recently got like a re-release and is it's long and it's big and it's weird and it has lots of crazy ideas and I, I won't even try to describe exactly what it's about so much as to say it has the same sort of like uh, a lot of the same sort of themes and implications as uh, as this movie does uh, Hellraiser and or there's a lot of clearly like queer subtext in that movie as well um, yeah and that's it's more of like a Neil Gaiman esque story yeah. than mm. Hellraiser. It's like a if Neil Gaiman and Neil Jordan started working on something together, it's you know <laughs> that, that level of like weird and creepy, but also kind of fairy tale-y. Yes. Um, Nightbreed is very strange. Um, but yeah, definitely if, if you love Hellraiser, Nightbreed should be like the next thing you check out, other than maybe Hellraiser 2, uh, which uh, Lana has mentioned is, is something you know we'd like to uh, talk about further at some point because that is the very direct sequel to this one also um, nightbreed stars david cronenberg much <laughs> like blood and donuts yes, david cronenberg notable canadian crime boss um <laughs> uh, all right now uh wait oh, alana yes. you had another comment oh if you love the thing which everyone should love i think particularly related to this conversation we're having about queer horror there is an amazing short story that you can read for free on the website of Uncanny Magazine by the writer Samuel J. Miller. And the short story is called Things with Beards. And it <laughs> is indeed a piece of the Thing fanfic written by a multi-time published novelist of queer leftist horror books and science fiction books. And um, it's an amazing short story and it's all about the Thing and the AIDS crisis and gentrification and right. gay. And it's the best fucking short story. Things so go with read beards? Things, with, things with beards. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, from there, Alana, uh, we can wrap up there. Did you want to let people know where they can find you online? Yes, I am on Twitter a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A <laughs> underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. My podcasts are Graphic Policy Radio. Uh, you know, associated with graphicpolicy.com. And of course, Jeremy has been on my show many times. Ben has been on my show many times. You can hear me interviewing them about their writing on my podcast. And I'm just launched Deep Space Dive, which right now is within Graphic Policy Radio, but is also going to have its own RSS feed. Awesome. awesome. And uh, Emily, can you let people know where they can find you online? Um, I'm uh, Megamoth, M-E-G-A-M-O-T-H on Twitter, uh, Mega underscore Moth on Instagram. Um, I'm also on Tumblr and on uh, the internet um, hmm. with Megamoth.net, .com, R.I.P. Strong Bad. Um, we just lost Flash and I'm sad about that. Um, anyway, and I also, uh, work on Princeless with Jeremy. We're, we're looking, working on volume 10 right now. Um, and Princeless is available on Comixology and wherever fine books are sold, like bookshop.org. Donate to your local indie bookshop. Nice. And, uh, Ben, where can people find you online? 
You can find me on Twitter at, at BenTheCon and fucking order Renegade Rule. Been shouting about it for months. It's going to be fun and cool. Do Yay. it. Order it. Or order it whenever this comes out. Forget it. <laughs> it's queer. It's full of action and funniness. And Sam Beck's art is all the awesomeness. Get it. I absolutely yeah. recommend it. Having having read a substantial amount of it myself. Ah, um, you're the best. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrome58. It's J-R-O-M-E-5-8. And jeremywhitley.com. Uh, my book, School for Extraterrestrial Girls, book two is available for pre-order right now. Uh, the first one is available anywhere books are sold. Uh, Raven the Pirate Princess book nine just came out. Uh, the other eight books of that and the nine books of Princess that are already out are all also available wherever good comic books are sold. And by the time this comes out, we should be uh, at least able to order collected editions of Marvel Action Chillers from IDW which uh, will finally be wrapped up as of January and the uh, you know, collected editions will be out soon. Um, so go check that out if you like uh, superhero stuff. Uh, as for the podcast itself, uh, you can find Progressively Horrified on Patreon at patreon.com slash progressively horrified on Twitter at prog horror pod as in progressive horror podcast. Uh, the website is progressively horrified.transistor.fm. And we would love it if you would come there, subscribe on whatever podcatcher you use, rate everything, review it, give us you know as many stars as humanly possible. Whatever, uh, whatever number of stars you are able to find, give those to us. We love stars. Um, that's it for now. Alana, Emily, Ben, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks so much for all of y'all to listening. Uh, to listening. <laughs> thank you so much to all of you all for listening we will get you back here this time next week bye-bye progressively horrifying was created and produced by jeremy whitley this episode featured jeremy whitley ben Kahn, emily martin and alana levin all opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and not intended to represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers nor do they represent any of the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Contact us on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod or by email at progressivelyhorrified at gmail.com. Finally, that was our... what went. Sorry. No, you're just gonna interrupt me. Fine, that's fine. It's fine, Emily. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. That's just that's what the Cinebite said when I woke up yesterday. <laughs> <laughs>